Hello, welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I am Chris Funderberg, one of the hosts of it. This episode that you're about to hear today is from a Patreon-only series uh, where I'm going chapter by chapter through Franz Kafka's The Trial to discuss the book in depth. Now, each of those individual Patreon episodes are about 20 minutes, but I had Martin Kessler on to discuss unfinished masterpieces, and we ended up talking for hours. So I said, rather than just keep this behind a Patreon, paywall because it's a guest and it's so massive what we're going to do is have this be like a regular episode uh, where it's behind the patreon paywall for one week and then it's released to general audiences if you're a general audience hearing that this is also should whet your appetite to listen to the trial series that i'm doing and to subscribe to our patreon again the only reason we have a patreon is so we can pay our writers and people who work for the site uh, a, a paycheck commensurate with their value this is the reason we have the patreon all of these other episodes we do, the trial series, the audio commentaries, the short films, the bonus episodes are all just so we can pay writers. So here is our unfinished masterpieces episode on Franz Kafka's The Trial, related to Franz Kafka's The Trial, inspired by Franz Kafka's The Trial. Enjoy it. Welcome to the special uh, limited Patreon-only series of the Pink Smoke podcast on Franz Kafka's The Trial. I am Christopher Funderberg, and I am going chapter by chapter through the 10 chapters of The Trial each episode. And on the first episode, uh, I said the introductory episode, I said a few things that are going to prove to be false now. One thing I said is that I would not be having guests on this series, and I would like to welcome Martin Kessler to join me to this episode. How are you doing, Martin? Great. I'm honored to be a guest on here. It feels like a real, like I'm a real guest if there's no other guests. So thank you. <laughs> well, we might see at the end. I was thinking of doing an episode on the film adaptations uh, as well at this. But the reason I wanted to do this episode with you is on the introductory episode to this series. I talked about how the idea of the project was to just stick to the text go chapter by chapter and ignore the Kafkaologists, ignore all the people who are archeologists and gatekeepers who claim to be experts and understanders of Kafka and just focus on the text and go through it that way. And the reason I wanted to do that is because Kafka, more than a lot of authors, has been taken uh, over sort of by the, the academic archeologists of his work. And, um, I was trying to avoid talking about why that is, but reading the second chapter and recording the episode on the second chapter, uh, I it's not that I made a mistake with it in talking about it, but when I got to the third chapter and started reading the third chapter, I went, oh yeah, that's what's happening in the courtroom scene, which is that when he's giving his speech, he's interrupted by a man and the woman in the back of the courtroom room, right? And as I start to read reading the third chapter, I was reminded, because I haven't read this book for 20 years, that's part of the idea is it's this book I really, really like that I want to go back to. I said, aren't the man and the woman in the back of the courtroom fucking? Isn't that what interrupts them? And I reread it, and that's not what it says. It just says he's clasped her arms and he's looking up at the roof with his eyes rolling up in the head in his head while he shrieks, right? 
So it's weird, but you don't get the sense of fucking. And I was like, where did I get the idea that they're fucking from? Where did this idea, which was so striking in my mind, because then the way they talk in chapter in the third chapter, she's using words like bothered and molested by this guy, right? And I said, ah, shit, I know what it is. It's in one of the uh, paragraphs that were eliminated. And this version I'm reading has all of the eliminated stuff that he struck out of the various chapters at the end of it, right? So one of the things that needs to be remembered about the trial is that it's an unfinished artwork that I'm not talking about a lot, right? And so every different version of these books has different ways of handling the fact that it's unfinished. And this one was I, that I was reading has the paragraphs that are in the back of it that uh, sort of that Kafka may or may not have wanted in it because it was pre-edited that wasn't edited in his lifetime. And this paragraph talks about she's got her breast hanging out and she's being groped. And it very much gives the impression that she's having her tor clothes torn off. And then this crowd is like pulling around them. And that's why Kafka has this sort of like, um, not Kafka. That's why Joseph K has this weird sort of panicked reaction to it on top of it. It's when the scene becomes more like sexually charged with violence and, uh, and, and, um, and becomes more real. It's also just like another example of the way sex sort of invades real life in this book that and in Kafka in general, the way sex invades people. Now, this is all preamble to why I wanted to do this episode and talk to you about this is just address that this is an unfinished book. Where does the unfinishedness of it come from? How was it finished? And just sort of how why talk about unfinished artworks in general and what do we do with them and that sort of thing can i start by asking you what's your relationship to kafka which i know but i want the the, the listeners to hear as well um i guess when i was in university especially i read some of kafka stories when i was younger but um, i became a little bit obsessive at a certain point and i had tried to adapt Kafka um, twice, actually, when I was, this was like maybe 15 years ago. Um, I wanted to make a 22-minute-ish animated adaptation of Metamorphosis, which um, in doing that, I tried to do sort of what you were saying and ignore the Kafkaologists and just kind of go by the text. And I think in doing that, I kind of came to some conclusions that I realized, oh, like this is a little bit distinctive from how other interpretations have depicted this. And the other project I did was about, um, it was more biographical. It was like a, almost like a before sunset kind of thing of uh, Kafka's last girlfriend, Dora Diamond, meeting him. Um, and this was sort of towards the end of Kafka's life. And that that had a few awards and was in some screenwriting competitions and things like that, but uh, never, never got turned into anything. <laughs> so uh, at a certain point, I was reading all of Kafka's writing, his um, not just his fiction, but his private diaries. Um, I was reading everything that his friends or people who had relationships with him had written about him, stuff like that. I hadn't read too much academically, but. Um, well, so sort of biographical. 
the the story about him and it's funny that you mentioned the diaries because those are a big part of the kafka mythos and it's funny too listening to you talk about it like me his work turns you into a Kafkaologist. It's sort yeah. of, there's sort of no way to avoid it. And I was thinking about part of the reason of that is what happened with Kafka's work is that he died very young and his Bex, his, his good friend and, and publisher and sort of literary champion, Max Broad, he gave him all of his work and said, when I die, burn all of this. And the reason Kafka did that is because he had been a failure. He didn't complete his three novels. There hadn't been much success in anything he had been published. When Max Broad got them, he read them all and was like, this is total genius. This is amazing work. I'm going to get these published, I'm going to make him a posthumous literary star. I'm going to finish the novels and I'm going to, and the stories, and I'm going to get these out in the worlds. I'm going to publish, he published, I think, four critical works on Kafka that are essentially, um, looking at Kafka's work and making him a champion. And the theme of these books is Kafka, the saintly genius, essentially. Right. Uh, he, um, so everything we know about Kafka sort of comes from Max Broad. And one of the things that he had to do was finish these novels. And in the case of the trial, the chapters weren't labeled. He, they were written individually and kept in stacks and they weren't labeled one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. They were just labeled whatever they were labeled, like the arrest or the whipper or whatever they were. And he had to figure out which order they go in. This will be the first indication that while Max Brode is on the one hand, deserves all of the credit for making Kafka what he is, he was also a disaster for Kafka at the same time, right? Because chapter two that we just talked about, he initially had it where chapter five was. And in his letters, because we'll get into this too in a second, is that um, he did a lot of, uh, he he also published his, his, uh, his correspondence on putting these books together and stuff like that. And if you have just even knowing a little, if you're just reading the trial for the first time, you go, how does he fucking make that mistake of putting these chapters in the wrong places? Like, how does he uh, misunderstand the work to an extent that like he's getting the chapter order that wrong? Now there's some chapters that it would be perfectly reasonable if he put them in a different place. And I'm not necessarily sure because I do avoid Kafkaology. Um, you know, how he decided to put chapter three where it is instead or chapter four where it is instead of after chapter two or you know how he made some of decisions about where certain things go uh, i'm not necessarily sure the other thing that max Brode did which gave birth to kind of kafkaology as a study is he decided to publish his diaries and aphorisms and letters and to put as much emphasis on the importance of the diaries and letters as he does on the literary works. And that creates it that you've got to look at Kafka, the person in his personal life and look at this work uh, through the lens of understanding Kafka, the man himself. And he really does have an almost religious vision of Kafka as this sort of sage and and saint of the the 20th century, who's going to lead humanity into wisdom and enlightenment, just as Kafka himself had been so wise and enlightened. And sort of, if you read these works as literary works and and you find out Kafka as a person, this is an absurd view. This is a 
very bad reading of the material and a sort of even more ridiculous view of of Kafka himself. And a lot of my thoughts on this, again, like I mentioned in the introductory episode, are colored by Milan Kundera's analysis of what all of this is, because I read the Kundera on Kafka before I read the Kafka uh, himself. So it all feels very obvious to me, you know? And that's why I really wanted to see if we could save this book from Kafkaology in some way. And I think after two episodes, the answer is no, you can't. But how close can we get back to it? You know, how close can we can we go back to the material? Because uh, it is a funny thing where it is really hard to know what to do with this, with this shit. I mean, what's your, what's your reaction? Like, how do you read the trial when you read it? Do you read the struck out paragraphs? Do you have a specific version you like? Like, what do you do when you read it? Do you think about the letters and stuff when you read it? Or do you just try and focus on the text? Uh, I mean, some of these stories I've read multiple times, uh, through a different perspective through like okay i'm going to consider i'm going to consider the journals when i write this is this you know uh self-insert is this uh joseph k k for kafka kind of an interpretation and then sometimes i've read it just as a as a story on its own i read the text um uh, i forget which version of the trail i've read most recently i've I've had a couple. Um, Metamorphosis was the one I sort of read most like meticulously and looking at different versions and having like a copy of the original text that I could kind of cross check with different translations. Um, but I mean, I think anytime you look at sort of an unfinished work, it's it's almost like a little bit of an archaeological process where you kind of have to fill in certain gaps on your own. Or if there's different versions, you end up kind of with this version that exists only inside your head that exists in between the different versions you kind of pick and choose certain details or like you said with the groping scene that's uh, possibly never meant to be included in the final version um, which I mean it's impossible to tell what would or wouldn't have been included because it's it, it wasn't edited, you know, it's uh, edited posthumously. And that's, that's such a big part of writing, but like with also Kafka, something like that, the air in which it's written, is he worried about censorship too? Would he want it to be certain thing and be afraid of censors? You know, yes. that's, that's the other thing that ends up clouding these waters, but go on. Well, I mean, there, there's so many different angles you can approach this stuff. And with Kafka in particular, I think it's interesting how you have degrees of unfinished projects or a spectrum of unfinished projects where like the trial I would consider to be more complete, uh, you know, and then you have something like the castle, which doesn't have an ending. It ends in sentence, yeah. but it, it feels like a complete work of art in its themes and its conception. And then you have something like America, which is much more fragmentary and like an incomplete story. And it's, it's like a fragment of something that could have been a novel or could have been a, yeah story it feels like sketches from something that he intended to be a big epic and like you only get like a few scenes from it you know like like if you only watched 45 minutes of once upon a time in america you know what i mean (laughs) you know and right right from the start when you have these like spectacular images it sort of sparks your imagination where could this go and i've always been interested in how somebody might adapt some of these if you use 
you know, for instance, America as a starting point, and then you want to adapt, like, okay, where could this story have gone? You know, the character runs off and joins the circus, or what, whatever, you know, it can go in a million different directions. Um, and it's interesting when you have something like, um, I was thinking about Haneke's adaptation of The Castle, yeah, where he doesn't try to extrapolate and doesn't try to come up with an ending, he just ends it and that's really just sort of the perfect ending for that, that fade story. to white which is really quite shocking yes. uh, the first time you watch it um yeah i I've, i agree with that one thing that we should that we should talk about too is the these books and these stories bring out the role of editor more than anything else because when you have uh, an author, they sign off on what an editor does. So that's how they sort of take back the authorial control from an editor, right? That they say, I I agree to this, whatever the author agreed to, that's my intention. So now it's my in- attention, my intention by absorption. You know what I mean? Even if the author cut up all my sentences and did whatever they did, now it's mine because I said, yes, do that, right? When somebody dies and it's being posthumously edited or unedited, like a lot of these works are, it really brings out how much work an editor is doing on this stuff. Like, have you ever read the unedited Raymond Carver stories? No. (laughs) It's fucking scandalous. Because he writes, he writes like a regular author. And he had this editor who was obsessed with removing adjectives and shortening sentences. And you realize his entire style is this editor like who seems to like be in the grips of mental illness or mania, right? How obsessive they are about like a regular length sentence. They'll cut down and make it into three sentences. And you go like, oh, the thing we associate with Raymond Carver is this fucking editor. You know, it's not him at all in this very uh, strange sort of way. And so the role of editor is brought out and to get off of the trial a little bit because I want to talk in in more general way about artworks. I had you read uh, Borges' short story, Pierre Menard, author of Quixote. Yes. Because the idea of the story, it's all about who's the author of something, but in a way that's jokey, that hopefully like takes the the piss out of some of these thoughts. I mean, the whole premise is, is trying to replicate it's about the um, this person Pierre Menard who wants to replicate Don Quixote as if as if he is the author as if Cervantes never wrote it and he's he doesn't remember it just he's trying to put himself in the position that Cervantes was in and create Don Quixote as if he's writing it for the very first time and replicate it exactly yes and he's like uh, again, and if you think of Kafka, because this guy, Pierre Menard, the made up author, so that it's a short story, it's only a few pages long. It's written, written sort of like a, a literary review. And you have the, the writer of the literary review talking about Menard, who's passed away. And he's like a dilettante and a dabbler, like the, the list of his other artworks are genuinely fucking funny if you've read any you know <laughs> if you've read any any sort of uh, academic dabbling stuff it's like drafts of a monograph on george bull's symbolic logic notes on certain affinities between i can't find between the philosophies of leibniz descartes and john wilkins you know that that kind of thing right 
And uh, and then his master project, which is never finished, is this version of Quixote where he's going to write word for word Don Quixote in the exact same language, right? And uh, in the exact same terms of it. And he goes and to all these absurd lengths to like try learning to... Castilian. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then this author, this this writer, this this literary executive, or this literary executive, huh? this literary executor talks about the chapters that he wrote because he only got done with three chapters because it was such a monumental undertaking. And he says, you know, compare these two different passages, right? Cervantes, for example, wrote the following in part one, chapter nine, truth, whose mother is history, rival of time, depository of deeds, witness of the past, exemplar and advisor to the present and the future's counselor. This catalog attributes written in the 17th century and written by the ingenious layman Miguel Cervantes is mere rhetorical praise of history. Menard, on the other hand, writes, truth, whose mother is history, rival of time, depository of deeds, witness of the past, exemplar and advisor to the present and the future's counselor. History, the mother of truth. What a staggering idea. And the joke is obviously that it's the same sentence placed in different contexts and placed in sort of different, different Menardologists looking at it and sort of interpreting what this means, different Cervantesologists doing that. And then the joke of the, of the short story is that Menard destroyed his version of, uh, of Quixote. And so that this author is only going through his reconstructions of Menard's versions reconstructing Quixote, right? Obviously, you can see when I'm reading the trial why I, I thought about this. What do you what do you think about like that short story in relationship to the trial and Kafka's work? I mean, in a way, it's saying that I, I think the the editor will never be the author. You know, you can edit things, you can put things into context, you can change it, but you'll never really know. It's always an approximation of like what I think this person should say. Like I, I mean, from my own experience, I've written things. I've even written things for the Pink Smoke Night, Pink Smoke site, where, you know, I've had mistakes, typos, whatever, like in my text, and then I, you know, sent it off to uh, John Cribbs to edit any. John Cribbs does it. not edit anything on the site. I edit everything. Oh, or you'll edit it. <laughs> Some, somebody will edit it. <laughs> just to, I'll, just I'll get for it back the record. Like, yeah. like, you fixed this, but you fixed it wrong. That's not what I meant to say. Like, <laughs> you know, I'll go and, it, it like, yeah. you know, oh, I look back and it's like, oh, I can see why. Like, I, I like had word salad there or something like that. Yeah. But, oh, wait, like, I, you know, let, let me see that back. Send it back so I can fix what, I meant to say so you know sometimes I, I feel like it's it's a little bit like that when you're editing something it's it's guesswork it's um, yeah you know I mean there's an art to editing also but you're you're always going to put your own your own fingers on somebody else's work when you're editing something or you're trying to replicate what you think that they're saying I mean like I was reading um a while ago, I was reading about uh, Solomon Northup in the 12 Years a Slave. And like, I was kind of fascinated. The the text, the autobiographical story, you realize like the guy who was editing it, publishing it, had like a huge hand in shaping that story. And he was like a white Christian, uh, like evangelical or like, uh, you know, yeah, abolitionist. Um, I forget if he was evangelical actually, or just like, you know, Christian who was like outspoken against abolition. And like, you can see him work all these things. Wasn't, into... wasn't he Quaker? 
I feel like he was maybe Quaker. he was a Quaker. I, I might have like messed up some of these details <laughs> in my memory, but like I remember reading it and it's like, oh, like when you read it, all of a sudden it like this is not the, the point of view of Solomon Northup. This is the point of view of somebody who wants to explain to like other white Christians you know, the, the plight of somebody who's experienced the slavery and it's taking somebody who, you know, oh, like the story is great because it's it's not about somebody who's, you know, born into the system of slavery. It's somebody who was kidnapped and forced into it. And then you have this, uh, you know, white Christian who comes and saves him at the end. And it, it's, it's all shaped in a way where it's like, okay, like maybe the autobiographical details are all correct, but clearly like they've been shaped to make a certain point to a certain audience and it sort of makes you think about it a little bit differently and it's it's funny when you watch the film adaptation by uh, Steve McQueen and you see some of that carry over and like it was getting a lot of recognition for like oh you know we have um, a black screenwriter and a black director telling this story about slavery in America and it's like well like it still ends up being this like white savior story because somebody like was maybe overly literal in adapting this text and didn't read between like okay like this is the hand of the editor like what, what was the real experience yeah. of Solomon Northup and like trying to get past that which in some ways is like an impossible task to like really see around the editor's hands or covering it in that way but it, like it did make me think about some of the ways that editing can shape a story or make you understand things or have themes that are not necessarily present in the original author's work or their intent or their life story or whatever yeah and it's also to me it's about interpretation and criticism and homage right where if you were to do perfect interpretation of an author's work you would just reproduce literally what they had done before right, right. that that if you were the the person if you attempt to perfectly understand cervantes you would just rewrite don quixote is the idea is that your literary interpretation of it is going to be removed in some it, way it's going to be you're, literal <laughs> yeah, yeah that but if you're trying to express what cervantes expressed in some fundamental way and the and the short story talks a lot about how menard identified so deeply as an artist with cervantes that this was his favorite author and you're an artist too you know how this is where you will identify with an artist so much and think you're doing an homage or a reproduction of yeah. say like Kafka and then when you step back and you look at it it's something completely different and it's been yes. warped by you so much and that's the way it must be if it didn't you would just be like I'm doing my video drum homage you would just make video drum you know what I mean you wouldn't make something well, I remember uh, there reminds me like I asked Nicholas Winning Refn once about his uh, Logan's Run remake which never got made I asked him about that and what he said to me like really stuck in my mind where he said I love the original so much that like I thought by remaking it I could sort of insert myself into the original like I could make myself a part of this film that I love that already existed and he sort of realized that creatively that was like a completely unhealthy way to go into any project which like I always think about that you know if it's like do I, do I really love do I love the original work and I, I want to just like insert myself or am I going to write something that's really distinctive and use an artwork to maybe produce a new artwork, which I think is more more interesting than homage necessarily. Yeah, well, that's you look at Max Brode and he does seem to be 
disinterested in anything but promoting the work, although he does write a Romana Clef that has a Kafka character in it where he is sort of for his own. And he wrote, I think, 20 novels on his own, which I tried to read one once. And they and I was like, well, let's see if Kundera is right. Also, and these, um, they're fucking I mean, terrible. <laughs> I, I think like they've also not had proper translations like the Max Broad writings. Yeah. Uh, like there was a little writing circle. There were a couple other writers in that group of... Um, yeah you know, Czech, German-speaking Jewish authors. And, like, Kafka is the only one that's really had, like, proper English translations and has, like, real attention. And, you know, I I don't know if, like, that would make Broad necessarily more readable. But, uh, you know, I mean, that's that's a whole thing, too. Like, translation is a form of editing. It's um, it's hard. Like, I've read works that are translated where I'm like, this is not what this person is saying. You know? <laughs> but I would or say like, that that Broad isn't trying yeah. to insert himself into the trial or metamorphosis right, the right. way Reffin wanted to with Logan's run. What he is doing, though, is inserting himself into literary legacy by A, not burning at all, which I think we can both agree was a reasonable thing to do considering yes. the quality of the work, but saying the letters and aphorisms are as important as the fictive work. I think that's where he inserts himself. Um, well, you, you say, you know, we both agree that Max brought not burning Kafka's writings is a good thing. And I agree as somebody who's alive in the 21st century who can read Kafka. But if I was in Kafka's shoes, like, I'd be mortified. Like, I, I have unfinished writing. And if somebody put that out, like, it, it feel like putting out naked pictures of me or something, you know, it's like. Oh, wait, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But finished. what if like, what if you were really hot? No, I'm kidding. Okay. Um, joking, joking, <laughs> of course. I, it I would still it be a heinous like... crime. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, uh, but like, you know, it's it's an unfinished thing, and it's there's like a vulnerability and an exposure when you read that that like it's not the same as something that an author has signed off like this is the finished version of this. And you know, you read uh, like the the groping example is a great one because it's like. Why did I write that? Maybe maybe that shouldn't be in it. Like you know, yeah. like I don't want anyone to see this. You're seeing kind of a a vulnerability in the process of the writing. You know, it's a snapshot. It's not the finished thing. It's it's on its way to being finished, and that's all you kind of have to work with. So it's not necessarily what the author wanted because writing it's it's a process. It's not like I have the story complete in my head word for word and I have to transcribe it out like that's not really how writing works you're working through ideas you're working through things and when you have an unfinished work and you read that like it's uh, like you know I I think like well in Kafka it's just these it's just these slabs of raw genius you know what I mean and it and it's so overtly brilliant writing but it does feel like these are just these slabs of, of like at raw genius is a phrase is sort of a cliched phrase, but in this of like uncooked, unedited, unformed. Mm-hmm. And in some of them, it gets very close. There's also stories that people love, like the judgment that I read. And I'm like, 
this really an editor would have made this into something. I don't currently feel like this is something, but other people are like, that's the most perfect short story ever written, you know? And, and that argument has to continue with Kafka again. When I was thinking about Terrence Rafferty's negative review of the thin blue line, right. Which I was shocked to read when I was young. It's my favorite film writer. And he disliked one of my favorite movies. And it's sort of the theme of the article is the artwork did this to me. I'm watching it too closely because it turned me into a detective who's absolutely causing me to scour it every inch of it in a way that other movies don't. Right. And the same thing happens with Kafka with this work. Again, it turns us all into Kafkaologists where we're scouring it to look for the meaning in all of these different parts. I mean, sometimes you're not even fully aware of the meaning in the work until somebody changes it. I mean, there are, there are cases of uh, like, you know, an author doesn't even have to be dead. Sometimes they can go back and like rewrite something and add something or edit and change something. And all of a sudden you realize like, oh wait, that destroys the meaning there, which I, I wasn't even fully like aware of, but it, it's all of a sudden that's gone. And it's interesting to me when, when an author comes back and revisits a work years later, you know, whether it's um, a film or a piece of writing or whatever, but it, it does kind of show how a person isn't static. And sometimes an artist revisiting their work years and years later, it's like, oh, you're a different person now. Like, this is a different idea of uh, what this artwork should be because you've got like 20 years of life experience that, that changed your perspective. Yeah. Like how they took out of Star Wars Han Solo showing his dick to those kids. I think that was a good change. George Lucas was like, I don't think that it's appropriate for him to have, you know, shown his I mean, wiener to all the, those children. Like classic, uh, it was funny when I was young. Nerds, but yeah. But is, let me ask uh, you about Han this. Shooting that guy, <laughs> is, um, is, uh, uh, the reason I thought of you for this episode, I didn't even know your history with Kafka, is I consider you one of like the real experts on Alexei Gehrman and Hard to Be a God. Do you consider Hard to Be a God a finished movie? Can you get, take the listeners through the background, just very thumbnail and what it is and what and, and is that a finished movie to you? I, OK, well, first of all, I, I would say Hard to Be a God, I do consider to be finished. Um, it's this 2013 film that was released after the death of the director Alexei Garman, um, a couple months after he passed away. It's, um, I guess, it, like it more was like two years, but <laughs> it was filmed. It was filmed in 2006, right? Something like that. Yeah, it was. It's filmed from like 2006 to like 2009, or maybe even earlier. I think it might have started filming. Um, had like a long pre-production period, had a long production period, had a very long post-production period. So sometimes I kind of forget like what, what the dates were on some of these things. Uh, Alexi Gorman died towards the end of post-production. So I, I think from what I understand, the stuff that was incomplete, people were talking about it like, oh, his, you know, his wife, Svetlana Karmelita and his son, Alexi Gorman Jr. were the ones who completed the film. And you get this impression of like, oh, do they go out and shoot stuff or do they edit? And like, really, like from what I read, it's it was more like, uh, we just kind of finished the the sound design and the sound edit, which on a film like that's not nothing because it's very layered and complex, the sound design. But, you know, you're talking about, um, I mean, Svetlana Karolita was like his coll uh, creative collaborator for like 40 years. She was his wife and producer and co-writer. And like, I think... 
you know, if anyone's going to be able to say like, okay, like we're going to complete this, uh, knowing what he probably would have done. It's, it's somebody like that, but the film itself has this very kind of long start and start kind of willy Wally kind of relationship with getting made. Um, like Alexa Garman tried to make it back in 1968. It's based on, um, Stragatsky brothers science fiction novel about this uh, planet that's almost like earth except it's it's stuck in this medieval period it, it's never had a renaissance or it's it's on the cusp of having one and uh, you have scientists from earth go to this planet and get involved with the um, local politics the local um, purging of intellectuals on this planet yeah. and it's it was interesting researching the history of it because at various points in time Alexei Garman almost had it made and at each point in time it would have been a different film and he, he was sort of open about like oh yeah like when I was young in 1968 like that would have been the more action heavy less philosophical kind of version of that story and it, it's hard to even imagine what that version would have looked like because his style hadn't really developed yet he talked about kind of finding his style while working on his film Trial on the Road in 1971. Uh, you know, I, I think like he met Svetlana Carmelita like the week that the production of Heart to Be a God got canceled in 1968. Um, so it's like, uh, like what what would have that even been the 1968 version? Yeah, you know, I, I know like some, some of the like script differences are interesting. You can kind of read about like, you know, the original ending, uh, which is almost like something out of, um, like Vincent Ward's version of Alien 3 that never got made. That's another kind of great unfilmed project. But like the tone of it, the style of it, it's really hard to imagine like what that would have been. You know, he tried to make it again in the 80s and it, it turned into this um, German production, which it, it's like an interesting film that I, I don't think really works the way it's it's meant to. It's it's more like a, <laughs> an oddity or, you know. I, like, yeah, I don't think that movie's good. <laughs> No, but it's it's weird too how it's like, like you know, the star of uh, Alexa Garman's best film, uh, My Friend Even Lapshin, is in that version of Hard to Be God. It's like, how did he end up in there? Did like Garman cast him and then like production moved over? Like, I never really got a clear answer on like how he ended up in the Why film. Why is he there? I, yeah. I assume Alexa Garman cast him and then it's like, oh, Moss Films making a deal with the German production company and, you know, like, here's the cast, <laughs> just hand it over. So, well, let me ask you um, this question. You feel like Hard to Be a God, the 2013 version, is a finished movie, yes. not an unfinished work, even though it was finished after the author died. Yeah. Is it knowing the history that causes you to feel that way or the finished film? Because when I first saw it, I didn't know it was supposed to be unfinished. And there was no question in my mind, it was a completed and finished film. I mean, to me, when I first saw it, it felt like this is so clearly somebody's life work like I, I had no idea about the history behind it i had no idea really who alexa garman was or the production history any of that you just watch it and it's like holy shit like where's this coming from this is coming from someone this is something that somebody's yeah. been working on like towards their whole film career you just can tell by watching it i feel like and then it, it sort of makes more sense when you kind of dig into the long history of it but like it, it's hard to pinpoint why exactly but it just feels like this very complete statement, this overwhelming kind of singular work of art that, um, you know, it doesn't feel fragmentary. It doesn't feel unfinished or unpolished. I, I think like, you know, if, if I 
if I want to make the argument that it's a finished film, I would say that like, you know, even though he passed away, like really all that was left was like a little bit of the, the polishing, you know, the, the work was already there. I think it's comparable to Eyes Wide Shut in that way, where yeah. um, I think those are two movies that I think most people would argue those are finished to the extent that like any movie gets finished, that every movie can keep getting turned over and worked on inevitably. And at some point you're just done and with Kubrick it. Kubrick is also a guy who would like pull the shining from theaters because he wants to chop off the epilogue because it sucks. And well, like, that's that's the next know. thing I wanted to get into because yeah. I'm sort of going layers of unfinishedness where uh, Eyes Wide Shut is and Hard to Be a God only the Kubrickologists and Germanologists would quibble about its finishedness. Right. You know what I mean? That and Kubrick definitely has there's more Kubrickologists than even Kafkaologists. You know, there's definitely more sure. people who sit around with very strong opinions, and I'm sure we'll send angry emails like, about it. <laughs> well, all when of I, this. I talk with Kubrick people about Eyes Watch that they assume that like, oh, had he lived, the, the changes would have been substantial. And I think like uh, maybe he would have tightened it up like by I think a couple, he would have like, fixed the music and probably yeah, like, not had the CGI like, shit. You know, there. the, the yeah. final version might have been like, you know, 48 seconds shorter and have <laughs> yeah. like, a better sound design during the orgy sequence. Like, yeah. you know, it, it might have been like very, very minor kind of changes. I, I do have a feeling he probably would have like tweaked it just knowing how Kubrick worked. Um, yeah. You know, it probably would have been tweaked right up until release. But it, like, for the most part, it's like, yeah, that's that's the film. I don't think he was saying something different that got like hacked to pieces. Yeah. Or stolen by Tom Cruise or anything. Now the next, the next thing that I wanted to ask about is, um, uh, Bizet's Carmen, right? This is a, this is an opera that was put on and performed. It was a disastrous failure. Uh, it was really, really long. Um, and he died after like 30 performances of it or something. But in that time, I read, I once read, and I was trying to find out where I read this, that he was in the process of revising it because it had failed and he wanted to make it meaningfully different. And that yes. after each performance, he was sort of changing it and adding it. And he was going to try and re-premiere it or something to that extent. Now that's an artwork that I was shocked to hear this because that's one of like the classic It's one operas. of the most famous operas ever. <laughs> yeah. Like it's but that, Carmen Jones. I, yeah, that he was unhappy with it and that yeah. a, the truer version was going to be debuted. But at the same time, it was external pressure from him. He made his opera and then critics and audiences and sort of the cultural apparatus was like, you got to fix this shit, right? Yeah. So when you watch Carmen, it's like, you know, uh, like the uh, the original of Quixote. What is it with this? You know, if Bazet did not express himself perfectly with this and wanted to change it, should I consider the changes that he was making or not consider them? You know, I think most people would agree again, like hard to be a God, this is a finished thing. Like yeah. get the fuck out of here, whatever he was going to do. All he was going to do is fucking star Wars it up, you know, special sure, edition. I mean, it sometimes up. the, the, like the final version of a work of art is not the definitive version. You know, you sort of go yeah. back to an earlier draft and say like, Oh no, the artist got it right the first time. And you know, there, there are, times where external pressures make an artist go back and change things and you know i mean there's a whole kind of there was like a special feature director's cut like uh, era where you know every dvd there was oh here's the director's cut of this and that and um you know i mean like just talking about carmen like that uh, i i think a little bit of blade runner where you have these like several different versions and like the 
the, the so-called final cut um, is not my favorite version of that film, you know, where it feels like the, the artist kind of keeps reacting to external stimuli, like, uh, for instance, fans saying that, oh, the Harrison Ford's character was a robot the whole time. And then, like, each yeah. version would get, like, edited to, like, lean more and more in that direction, which, to me, is, is stupid. It's like... It doesn't make any sense. It, it doesn't, like, <laughs> the, the idea that he is a robot is very interesting as a question and very stupid as a statement, you know? Like, yes. It's yeah. like, oh, you know, could he be like, oh, like, you know, it's interesting when you're watching it because the themes and you're questioning like, oh, what's humanity? But, you know, if if you do make him a robot, then it's like a story about a robot teaching a robot about the human power of empathy, I guess. I don't know. Like, <laughs> that's not a great story. <laughs> so, you know, I, I kind of feel like... <laughs> My, you know, when I talk to people about Blade Runner, my favorite version, it's like, well, I, I don't really like the, the one with the voiceover and I, I don't really like the most recent one. Like, I think my favorite version of Blade Runner is like the one that kind of exists in my memory of like between these different versions where I just kind of edit together what I really yeah. like. And then, you know, like to me, that feels like a very Philip K. Dick kind of experience of being like, yeah, that my favorite version of Blade Runner, it's not any of the three on my dvd shelf it's it's the one that's like you know kind of in between all those versions that i think about yeah for sure and that's definitely an, another level of unfinished work are the ones in which there's no definitive version because the artist keeps tweaking it over and over there's also their cases life. where i think like the tweaking can turn it into like a new and interesting work of art like i was going to bring up on the silver globe by andre Zhivovsky which is uh, his big science fiction film, uh, I think based on his grandfather's writing, which was considered yeah. like one of the most important science fiction stories of its era. It was like an influence on Dune and all this stuff. Uh, production got shut down when he was making it back in the 70s and about 20% of the film was never completed. And like on the Silver Globe, as it was originally tended to, the, the film it was intended to be like never got finished. And then when he had a chance to revisit it in the 1980s, Zhivovsky, instead of um, instead of trying to recreate the missing scenes as they were scripted with special effects and stuff like that, what he did instead was went out and filmed present day footage and then kind of describes what you would have been seeing. And it turns the film into something completely different. It's like... Um, it's hard to describe it. It's almost like, oh, this film is also like a documentary about itself in addition to being yeah. this, like science fiction film. And it, it actually makes it a more interesting work of art. And I, th I think like ultimately a more powerful work of art when you get this idea of, you know, state control and censorship kind of woven into the text of the film through this new footage. And like the way it ends with this, um, the camera going up to this reflective surface, like I think it's sort of a, like a mirror on a building or like a shiny window and you see Zhivovsky's reflection in it and it, it's it's become this whole other work of art which I, I think is really powerful and probably like a better film than it just oh this is a cool science fiction film with some interesting themes yeah um this is also just while we're talking I've thought of a few things um Gus Van Sant's Psycho, which, uh, yes. you know, when we were talking about the original of Quixote, right, where uh, you have essentially that with Gus Van Sant acknowledging yep. I can't 
what does it mean to in film to rewrite something word for word, sentence for sentence, you know, like what does that actually mean in film and that he wanted to keep doing different versions of it over and over and over. He wanted to essentially remake Psycho every year for the rest um, of her life. I went to a talk with Chris Doyle where he said like, I guess Vincent, I guess his original like pitch was like, I'm going to remake Psycho every 10 years. Yeah, a new like shot for shot remake just every single time. I've heard Vigo talk about it too because Vigo Mortensen was really into it who's proven to be at the time he was just like a pretty boy actor but at the time uh, he's proven to be a really interesting artist but he was like yeah the pitch was like we do a punk rock version of it and we do a new wave version of it and we do a disco (laughs) and I'm sure those weren't the actual things but like the that sort of like we keep doing different versions of it of the shot for shot remake of it and I I think that Gus Van Sant is very savvy about what he's doing. It's an interesting experiment to sort of say what what is the essence of yes. Psycho. When I say I'm remaking Psycho, how am I capturing the essence and redoing it in some way? You know, like it, it's interesting because the more I learned about it, I, like I stopped watching it as as oh, this is a remake. This is a new film on its own, and almost like a, a five obstructions kind of a new thing. It's yeah. an experiment when you watch it. You realize like okay, this is interested in doing something other than like telling the story of Norman Bates. You know, it, yeah, it's, it's not. <laughs> being a crowd-pleasing thriller for an audience no no, it's it's the most experimental uh, the most expensive experimental film ever made really truly and it's in a lot of like big time hollywood stuff like like, 2001 or something will get called experimental but it's uh, like chris doyle was was saying like how different it was from them shooting on the hong kong films where like yeah you know you're stuck in a little apartment and you have to like try to make everything work with the camera and he said you know he was he said he realized how different hollywood productions were when he was working on Psycho and he was trying to frame a shot right and it's like ah like I'm kind of too close to the wall and they said oh we'll just move the wall <laughs> <laughs> he said like oh it's it's just like you can do anything when you're working on a Hollywood film like that yeah but, absolutely but um so also with with Quixote uh the reason I thought of that short story is just the sheer number of disastrous abortive Quixote films right. you know that that's that that very much is sort of in the I mythology mean, it's, it's of funny, Quixote like, if Orson Welles who did his adaptation of Kafka's The Trial and he he was sort of famously stuck on a Quixote film for a long time I mean he's got a whole bunch of <laughs> strange well, yeah. uh, unfinished projects under his overcoat <laughs> like um i mean Quixote. I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about but like the, his um other side of the wind like that was the famous one for a long time where it's like oh like maybe it's going to get finished maybe it's going to get finished i mean like um when i was still doing flicks wise you know joseph mcbride would come on the podcast and like talk about like oh you know we're we're getting it finished we're getting it finished and I, I remember almost sort of in passing making as a joke I, I said like you know it'd be funny if they finally put everything together and everyone's been waiting for all these years and then the film just sucks <laughs> it, it's it's um it's a strange thing to see because you're what you're really watching is not like the film that I, I think Orson Welles would have made it's like an approximation it kind of goes back to what we we're saying about the editors where it's um it's somebody's interpretation of that footage that Orson Welles shot saying what it could have been or what it might have been. I, I kind of wish they had, instead of trying to present the film as like a film on its own, had worked it into the, there's that documentary that came out on Netflix at the same time as it. Um, 
I forget what it was called. Like they'll they'll hate me when I'm dead. They'll love me when I'm dead. One, one me of when the I'm two. Dead. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they'll hate you when you're dead too. But um, you know, <laughs> they like, will hate me was, both uh, when I am alive and dead. <laughs> but like there was also a documentary that came out around the same time on Netflix called Shirkers. I don't know if you've seen it. It was about no. this um, film. It was supposed to be like a road trip movie in Singapore, which is funny because like Singapore's tiny. Yeah. Uh, and like the, the filmmaker talked about, you know, she wrote the story and they filmed it. And like the guy who shot it basically like fucked off and, you know, the footage was lost for a long time. And when they finally got it back, like the sound was missing. And it's interesting to, if you watch that film, that documentary, how they incorporate the footage that was shot for this film that was never finished and uh, work it into the documentary in a way where you feel like, okay, like I get a sense of what this could have been, but it's not trying to present it as if this is the film itself. This is the finished film. You know, I, I kind of wish other side of the wind, they did something a little bit similar because you watch it and like it, you can't judge it as an Orson Welles film. Like it's not yeah. an Orson Welles film. You know, you can, it's somebody's interpretation of what an Orson Welles film would have been. Like, which is again, similar to the trial, although one thing that I think is admirable with with Kafkaology is they really do try to avoid embellishment as much as possible. But again, that just emphasizes the rawness of a lot of it, where it's like, let's just stick with what he did. And then you look at it and you go, well, it's not done, you know, in a lot of cases. Uh, Although I think the reason I wanted to focus on the trial, the trial does feel 98% 98% of the way there to exactly. make yeah. it does feel on, on the spectrum of, of Kafka work like it is far closer to being a finished work than America you know yeah and in another genre of unfinished works you have stuff that um Fitzcarraldo, which had the Jason Robards, Mick Jagger version that you can famously right. see footage of in Burden of yeah. Dreams that falls apart. And then you have this other movie with Klaus Kinski built on the ruins of it, you know? And to me, there's that kind of work where people are always like, I'd love to see the Mick Jagger Fitzcarraldo. And it's like, well, you do. It's it's the Klaus Kinski. That's yeah. part of the process is building it on top of that. Whatever, however he got to the end, you're looking at the finished thing, you know? there's not the other one that's that's a piece of the archaeology of it if you dig inside of the monument he built down into that pyramid in the tombs you will find the bodies of jason robarts (laughs) and mick jagger there right Right. and and there's not this other thing which i think is a slightly different thing than like jodorowsky's dune which is just exists in the imagination that kind of the perfect place for it to exist i mean yeah it's it's to the benefit of that film that it was never made because yeah, it, would obviously it exists suck. in this like like where it exists right now when you'd look at the artwork and hear the ideas and you imagine the perfect version of that it's a completely uncompromised thing that your imagination can embellish and it exists in your head like like i i think you know a film that exists only in your imagination that's like the best way to adapt dune really i, yeah. I think it's a kind of a mistake to make dune into cinema like it's, it's not a cinematic story you know and that's kind of interesting about the Yodorowsky version is like I don't think he really cared that much about Dune he just saw it as something to like insert all his own ideas into and his you know his seven samurai of creative people all he was going to he was going to lo- ref and Logan's run it up he was just going to take well, it and run roughshod over it I, I think he was going to do the opposite where it's like <laughs> I don't care about Dune. Like I, Dune is just like <laughs> yeah, yeah. D- Dune is the the skeleton that I'm gonna put all this like juicy Yodorowsky meat and you know Dan O'Bannon and Chris yeah, Foss yeah. and H.R. Giger and like all these 
very interesting creative people like i'm gonna let them create and they're gonna build on top of this and like i don't really care about trying to bring that story uh, as written into the world of cinema because yeah. like it, it wouldn't really work as a film so you know I, I i mean it's been adapted to film twice now and there's like a television series but i still feel like dune is is sort of on some fundamental level like not a cinematic story um you yeah know, you try, like every time they they try to make dune cinematic it means like polishing off the sharp edges of dune so um, yeah. yeah and it's and i think that just to to bring it back to kafka and talk about this spectrum of stuff a little bit i think you have something like the metamorphosis which is in the hard to be a god eyes wide yes. shut category of this is basically done you have something like the trial that is is maybe 98 percent of the way there maybe not finished sort of that next step down not really like the ones that are tweaked continuously by an author but we that we like we talked about but that ones that are sort of in a space that it's done and then you have something like america which is more you have to imagine what it would be more than anything else it's something like like the the man who killed don quixote or something yeah like like the most fragmentary artworks are are sometimes the most interesting like um one i thought a lot about is clouseau's inferno yeah where like you always see people share that the test footage yeah and like everyone loves it and it's like you know this wouldn't have been in the movie well like you know or it would have been like very quick snippets kind of in between things like um the um chabrol chabrol did his own film version of this much much later and the way it includes like you know the little abstract imagery that's probably pretty close to what Cluzo had in mind where it's just these brief little snippets to like build to the tension but like if you watch uh if you watch a gif of the Cluzo's inferno test footage on youtube with the colors and romney schneider and it's like yeah your imagination just runs wild with that you're like wow like i would have loved to see a whole film like that it wouldn't have been been. and that's and to me all that footage too is sad because it's Cluzo trying to keep up with the french new wave who were not particularly kind to him and all of that footage has old man flop sweat on it to me and in fact (laughs) him having the heart attack while the production is about him realizing he can't keep up with the young people and it's like him throwing every idea he can at the wall but that's not his artistic personality and there's no reason to think him throwing every fucking thing he can think of at the wall would have been any good Clouseau movies are good when they're Clouseau movies not when they're like maybe I'll film through a kaleidoscope because French New Wave has you know because 400 Blows has a jump cut in it you know what i mean like it, it's not him it, it's it's very easy to see how that would have been his worst movie and in fact stuff that tries to be french new Wavy that he did like la verite is not that great right it's not as good as his as his best stuff and it's exactly what you're saying where it's it's would exist in the imagination is is better than what it is. There's another category of unfinished artwork that I want to talk about in terms of Kafka. So I was thinking about Charles Williford's famous Grimhaven manuscript, right? Which is that you have late in his career, Charles Williford writes Miami Blues, which is like a big beach read type detective novel hit in the 80s. And he's under a huge amount of pressure to write sequels to it and turn it into a series. And so he writes the sequels. It's called Grimhaven. And it is insanely bleak and violent and like the main character like kills his own children and kills himself right and turns this like hoke mosley guy who's supposed to be a character into this 
horrific nightmare stuff. His agent wouldn't even show it to the publisher. He's like, this is not going anywhere. You're writing something else. And so he writes an actual sequel called New Hope for the Dead, which is not a very good book. And it's sort of setting up the larger series. And then Sideswipe and The Way We Die Now are great books uh, on the level of Williford's other stuff. But the Grimhaven manuscript is something that's out there that was never published and never really edited. And you can read it. And it's sort of like, is this a book or not? And I think that that's like the castle where you read it and you go, is this a book or not? You know, I feel like it is because I can feel so much of the author's personality. And I like the author so much that I want to read all of this and take all of the good parts of it. But is it a book? I'm not sure this is actually a book. I think it's a thing, you know? And I think that that's part of, though, again, the disservice bro does to it is acknowledging the truth, which is that these books aren't finished and they're closer to things like journals and letters being published and notebooks full of aphorisms. It's closer to to like literary marginalia, right? And and literary detritus than it is being, uh, being a book, you know? It's more like a thing, you know? Well, and like I think that the, it's like frustrating like to me. Michelangelo sculptures, which are like partially finished. Yeah. Which I don't like some people now say like, oh, maybe they were always meant to look like that because they're too good. But like, yeah, the, the um, what you call it, non finito. Yeah. You know, it's like to me, the the castle kind of feels like that. I mean, one one work I wanted to bring up because this was sort of a new development as far as unfinished works is uh, Kentaro Miura's manga Berserk. Yeah, which is this uh, long-running manga series, which um, it's probably like I think it's as old as I am. He's been working on it for you know over thirty years, um, thirty-two years, and then very suddenly he died. He was you know quite young. He's in his mid-fifties. A lot of people kind of say like, oh, you know, the pressure from fans who are constantly like, you know, why is this taking so long? Get back to work, <laughs> you know, probably contributed to his death. Um, why Why won't that happen with George R. R. Martin? Sorry, <laughs> I mean, just I, kidding. I I, like I, I'm not wishing death on George R. R. Martin. No, that was a joke. I mean, if I, if I was in George R. 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 Martin's shoes, I would just like not finish those books at this point just to spite people. But <laughs> there's <laughs> like, no reason to. There's no upside. No, I, I mean, They're I, only I, going to be hated. Exactly. They're only going to be a disappointment. Anyway, you know, I, I feel like, you know, you don't, have, while you're alive, you still have ownership over your creation. And like, I, I really feel like, you know, one of the ways you could exert power is to destroy or not finish something. <laughs> like once you're dead, then like anyone else can come in and like write their own ending. And I mean, yeah. that's kind of what like Berserk. Um, so he passed away. The, the story is unfinished. Uh, it kind of ended in a point where I, I thought it was like sort of a perfect non-ending for it where you know there's this kind of lull the characters find a little bit of peace and calm and you kind of get the sense that like it's it's the lull before the big final conflict um you know the big climax you know he said he had been working kind of towards a definitive ending for a little while now and then you know it's like the little lull right before it kind of ramped up to that which to me was the perfect place because people kind of argued about where the story would end and you know or the is the hero going to be hell-bent on vengeance and kill his enemy or is he going to turn away from that and live peacefully with the, the woman that he loves or you know there's these different possibilities and like to me it was sort of a perfect way to end it where it's like okay these characters after going through all these awful things have a little bit of peace and quiet and then you know the rest is left up to your imagination and like i, I think like to me that actually feels very complete um but 
you know, it was recently announced that uh, Miura's assistants and one of his friends is going to complete this manga, um, you know, without him. So, like, you know, I've been talking to a lot of friends about this because I, I followed this story for, for a while. And it's it's the kind of situation where I almost feel like, you know, you can write a conclusion, but it's not him doing the artwork. It's not him writing the story. You know, they, they can say, oh, you know, he told us, you know, he maybe wanted to take it here or there. But like, really, it's, it's not him doing it. So I, I think it's going to be one of those situations where it kind of feels like, you know, Berserk up to his death is the work of art and the the conclusion is going to be the sort of, uh, you know, ephemera or some kind of like addendum that feels, you know, maybe interesting to see where it could have gone, but not really essential to the work of art. Like, I, it, well, it's a little bit like uh, Schweik, you know, with Hashek who died partway through that series. Yeah. Well, um, that's another that's another category are the um, Good Soldier Strike uh, or yeah. Confessions of Felix Kroll, where the author right. is working with editors and publishing them and getting the work done, but doesn't get it finished, right? Right. Like Felix Kroll is a phenomenal book, but it's part one. You know, it's essentially it's like, what if, what if, like what if Tarantino yeah. died after making Kill Bill part one is what <laughs> Felix, you know what I mean? It's yeah. sort of like, can you consider that a completed artwork or not? Can you? And to me, because I like Felix Kroll so much and Schweik so much, I, I have a tendency to be like, they're fine. Those are done. Don't well, don't worry about any of that I, other I shit. Like, the like, story would have had an ending and it would have been whatever it is, but who gives a shit, you know? The ending is, is almost like, a, it's not fan fiction, but it's like, oh, the, the, this is what it could have been. Yeah. You know, you sort of feel like this is independent in some way from the work of art. Like, I'm... I know, like, the, I talk to a lot of, like, people who are more into these uh, fandoms and things, and they're very, like, fixated on what's canonical or not. And, it like, to me, yeah. it, it just seems, like, absurd when you're talking about, like, oh, like, I can't believe they erased the Star Wars novel from existence. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you read it. Yeah. Like, it exists. <laughs> you know, um, like, it, it doesn't erase something just because, like, some weirdo on the internet who had no part in the creation of this work of art to begin with said, like, I, I declare this non-canonical. <laughs> like, it's yeah. so absurd to me. Uh, but, you know, like... Well, I but that's the other... About, um, yeah. Something like, like a Berserk or like Schweik, where it's very popular and you have people following the series and, like, they, they just want that conclusion I, I it's probably the same for game of thrones i haven't read those books but the way those fans talk like give us the ending george R. R. martin or else like well that's you know. that's the other thing that we haven't talked about is the way in which any artwork when it's done then belongs in part to the audience and i think in yeah. the modern era we see how bad fandoms are for oh, yeah. art that there's some way that that needs to be discussed of of people who think they've taken full possession of something just like star wars fans relationship to george lucas is psychotically it, it nuts is. <laughs> it's psychotically nuts yeah. to me you know i agree with the outlaw Vern idea of these weirdo space novels made by an erratic maybe not necessarily uh a wholly good artist that he's he's turned into this world they're his for good or for yeah. bad and the thing you love and the thing you hate they're his but the fandom goes way out of their way to be like 
no, the Star Wars thing is good and George Lucas is somehow standing in the way of it and it'll be great when it's taken away from and turned into these empty corporate Disney things. We don't want the prequels. We want The Force Awakens. And that's obviously a battle within the fandom, but a lot of the fans are perfectly happy to have the baby Yoda shit, which is like both something that like like George Lucas, yeah, (laughs) but that George Lucas easily could have done. You know, you can see baby Yoda shit, plenty of it in Return of the Jedi and also some Something that feels like a, you know, marketing department sat down yeah, and was yeah. like, what would sell the most? What, 100%. We, we put, yeah, we talked to 1,000 people between ages 5 and 35, and what product would sell the most? It's Baby Yoda. Writers, Baby I mean, Yoda show, go. One thing that's you know? fascinating to me about George Lucas is you get a sense that he tried to be that, and he wasn't very good at it. Like, when he's yeah. trying to appeal to, like, I think audiences are really going to like this and it's like jar jar yeah you know he he was um because like george lucas i I think at heart he's not a blockbuster guy he's the guy who made like th1 thx1 an american graffiti which is legit like he's not spielberg you know (laughs) (laughs) so i don't know it's it's hard to i really do think like on some level those um special editions where him kind of reasserting his ownership over those films um even if it, it's to the film's detriment it, it is sort of that feeling that like hey i like this is my creation i'll i'll wreck it if i want to I'll exactly want to, so. he's a real artist he's idiosyncratic in that way not to imply that like spielberg isn't a real artist or something but he's definitely somebody who is an artist in the sense of like i would rather burn this down than have my audience think they're in charge of it you know what i mean <laughs> he's definitely of that of that mindset of like of that and you're right you know like on the the special edition special edition special features there's all of the top artists in the world special effects artists and everybody working on it before they come out and nobody sees it coming they're all like kids are gonna love jar jar banks like just nobody sees it coming and you realize the only reason this happened other people were involved sure in making the originals great there were unquestionably other people involved but no but he did it you know, at the end of the day. And if he had been surrounded by this other different group of people, and if he had done something different, it just would have been the prequels. You know, it, it's really like whatever happened is his fault in some way. And if you take it out and you sterilize it, you do end up with something far less interesting, right? And I do wonder if there's like, would I rather have had some sterilized, over-edited version of the castle, you know, or do I that that we don't really hear about the behind-the-scenes working and machinations? And Max Bro just Turn decides the trial into a legal drama. Like, <laughs> well, no, but just like just that that like if Max Bro takes the three novels and. Yeah five or six of the best short stories and edits them and releases them as these definitive versions and doesn't say anything about it. If he just releases them, would we just take them for granted and say, these are done artworks in some way, you know, probably because I I think there are artworks that are released that way that we do take for granted and we don't realize the whole backstory behind them. And it's, I think in some ways, if you're interested in creating, if you're interested in art and film and filmmaking, it's, very fascinating to see these unfinished works or incomplete works because it it gives you insight into that process of creation it's uh 
it starts to make you question and understand how these things are put together. I mean, like when I was very young, the, the first films that really got me interested in filmmaking were the alien movies. Yeah. And I watched the, um, I had the like VHS box set that had this like extra tape that was the making of, and I watched the making of more than I watched the film alien itself. Yeah. And then, you know, when you, you're watching alien three and you're like, something doesn't feel right yeah. <laughs> and then you start getting fascinated by the whole backstory and how like they changed the script so many times where they had this and then you statement. watch the director's cut and you're like oh while this is better in some ways they couldn't release this this is yeah, bad that, this was this was a misstep yeah i mean there are things i i like about that film but it's also i i think the people who are like trying to reclaim it as this like um, i don't know secret masterpiece or yeah. whatever like they're I trying think, to give it the ishtar treatment well like, i understand like they're responding to this like bleak tone and they're they're yeah. things they like about it but it like i i think um it's it's one of those things getting back to the like fandom stuff that a lot of the fans i think who hate it hate it for the wrong reasons you know people are saying like, hey, i can't believe they killed off hicks and newt like how could they dare do that i i wanted a film where they have a million space marines and they fight a hundred queen aliens and you know, yeah. you hear about the Neil Blomkamp version of um, an alien sequel that he wanted to make, where he ignores that Alien 3, uh, Alien Resurrection, were, that they even exist. And like fans keep talking about this as if like, oh, like fine, like the, the alien film that fans deserve. And you read all his ideas and you look at the concept and you're like, this would have been terrible. This is just Aliens 2. Yeah. This is like garbage. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, the man you know, made Chappie, so there's it, no reason yeah, to think he knows how to make a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> Chappie's his most watchable film, but uh, thanks to Robot Number One, I actually love Chappie in a lot of Chappie, ways. Chappie's, but Chappie's, but... yeah, but but Chappie's like an Alien yeah. Three type movie of like this was a mistake. Like whoever signed off on this from the beginning, you well, you you just put the wrong foot forward from the start I with the Alien. Whole movies. idea, like of uh, like, hey, we're gonna just ignore these films that we don't really like yeah. in a franchise. Like the, Halloween's done something similar where they, they've actually made those films. To me, like it feels. Like my objection to it isn't really like, like, I, again, I don't really care about the canon or this or that, but it feels like yeah. an out for people who aren't interested in finding value in flawed artwork. Yes, it feels like uh, a mindset that generic art that gives us what we want is completely fine, you know, which, uh, which is just that it really is those two Halloween movies are so super generic and anything memorable about them are sort of the, like, that's not that great stuff, but sort of the closer it hues to the line or the, or the, the legacy legacy star Wars movies, just sort of the more it's like just nothing, but like the audience getting to have more of what they wanted to have to begin with. It's sort of, it's like anti-art to me. Yeah. Like those well, Halloween movies almost... are like, they might as well be, uh, you know, nothing. They just might as well be nothing. They, they're, It's like eating cotton candy. Like it's either there or it's not. Did you have an experience? I guess I can remember sweetness for 20 seconds and then it's gone. They're just nothing. You know what I mean? And you don't want it to be that in some way or i don't want it to be that people obviously fucking want it to be that those movies are huge hit and yeah, people yeah. like them you know <laughs> but for me like a lot of the artwork that's impacted me most um you know whether it's book or film it's stuff that didn't necessarily give me 
what I want. Like I, I always talk about like how some of my favorite films, I, I wasn't even sure if I liked them at first. Yeah. Like, to me, that's almost like the mark of a good film is like when I'm coming, I'm like, wait, did I even like that? Like hard to be a God. Like I was not love at first sight. It was like, no, that movie is sight, really you know? like that movie is something. <laughs> So, that movie is really you know but really the, the films like that or you know there's books i've read where it's like oh i hate that they kill off that character you know or whatever and it it's like well it sort of makes you think about the way that life works or makes you or every like every alan renee movie is like you yeah. read the description and then you see it and it is not that fucking thing yeah and sometimes it's to its benefit and sometimes it's to its detriment but a lot of the time you watch his stuff and you're like wow that was just not what was advertised but that's what makes him an interesting artist in some ways you hear like oh it's a, a musical and then you watch it and you're like oh that's not what I thought of when I heard it was a musical or like, you know, something like the concept of smoking, no smoking or, or Jatem Jatem, like, you know, a time travel romance. And then you see it and you're like, Oh, or like, or or my American uncle, like just, you read a description of him and you're like, I know what that's going to be. And then you watch it and you're like, it is not that whatever it is. It is not what I thought it was going to be. I always tell people who uh, think that Christopher Nolan is doing something artistically interesting with time, that they should go and watch like an Alan Renee movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, to me, Christopher Nolan feels like, like, it's like if you were at film school and you picked like out of a hat, like, Oh, your theme for this project is time. Yeah. Like, to me, that's how he approaches <laughs> it. And like Alan Renee, like actually has very interesting things to say about time. And like, if you're going to watch like an Alan Renee time travel movie, yeah, like oh, like this is going to be interesting. It's going to say something really interesting, or you know, yeah. Hiroshima Mon Amour or something like like I, th- I think. And yeah, Hiroshima Mon Amour is is very yeah. hard to to again. It's not what you think it's going to be. It's a it's about a ro- it's a romance across the 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 lines of country <laughs> and philosophy and World War Two, and you're like, oh, I think I got that, and then you watch it, and you're like, no, it's like an experimental bleak diatribe about like if you want to understand love you have to be willing in your heart to say i would love a nazi and you're like what i don't know that i agree to that at all you know uh, not a not a nazi but you know what i mean like a german during world war ii so um uh you know not to get too far afield but um also one of the just my last far field on renee is errol morris in passing many times refers to how much he hates Night and Fog. I believe he calls it his least favorite movie. And I've never heard him elaborate on it or elucidate that idea. And I'm always really curious by this movie that's obviously so powerful and so impactful and so intelligent and so interesting. And I watch it and now I watch it and I'm like suspicious. I'm like looking for the like, what's up with this that Errol Morris hates it? Like, why why does Errol Morris- you have artists who have a very specific idea of like like how their art works and how art should be made and like sometimes they have like very strong opinions on on other works of art that i find are like hey that's not that different but i'm, I'm looking at yeah. it from like an outsider's <laughs> perspective and they're looking at it from like no this is like like i forget if i've said this on the podcast before but i always think about the the story of like harmony Corinne going up to tot salons and being like you're everything that's wrong with cinema <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. I was kind of fat, uh, wonder about because it's like, you know, clearly like they're so deep into something and they see things from such a specific perspective that it's yeah. like, 
No, you're looking at it and there's two identical houses next to each other. They look very, very similar houses, maybe not identical. And then you're like, uh, man, this houses look similar. Errol Morse is like, I fucking hate that house. You're like, what do you mean? You're like, look what they did to the doorknob. You're like, the doorknob? (laughs) You're like peering at it. It looks like a doorknob to me. Oh yeah, these doorknobs are wildly different. Errol Morse is like, double burden the house like fuck that fucking house you know um but to get back on track just when we were talking about schweik and how it's unfinished that's a book because it is a big it was episodic it was published yeah, it, episodically like a series than than a book it's, yeah, yeah i don't think i've ever read it stop to start you know and i don't think i don't know if i finished it i don't know if i haven't it's one of those books that like you don't need it doesn't need I, I to be finished at all the, the way it's that like, they published yeah. in english with that penguin edition where it's all one big volume yeah it is like a horrible horrible way for anyone to read Schweig because like you know that's not how it was originally read and like also the translation going back to like translation issue it, it does a lot of stuff where it's like i'm gonna kick you in the arse and like yeah it, it like tones it down and it, you know it, it takes a lot of that kind of edge out of it and yeah I, I feel like it, it you know effort to kind of like clean it up or something it, it does kind of diminish the language well that's Um, yeah yeah. to go back to kafka too where max broad i would say max broad's biggest sin with kafka is that he doesn't understand this shit is funny he doesn't understand these books and stories are really really funny that's always been my assertion that too is that metamorphosis is like hilarious i I feel like people who take it very seriously don't like it's a story about a guy who turns into a bug eats shit and dies like that's funny you know well when you like everyone's like thank god he's dead when you would read, uh, when he would read it to his friends, like in the sort of yep. like do a reading so they could hear it, like it was uproarious laughter the whole time, right? But and you that don't makes even sense. Need to know that story, like you just yeah. need to read it, and like to me, it feels like very obvious. Like, oh, this is funny. Um, yeah, the trial know, is fucking like, hilarious. You know, it, again, it's like somebody going to see like a Woody Allen movie, being like. It's so sad how neurotic that man was. Like, yes. You know what I mean? Well, it's, it's just it's just watch the Orson Welles version of the trial to be sure. like, what if somebody didn't understand these are jokes? I you know what like, I mean? What, what's like, good about the, the Orson Welles version is like, I almost feel like I could picture him saying, I don't understand Kafka and I don't want to. <laughs> yes. You know, when he talks about how he changes the ending, it, it's like such a drastic change that I feel like, like this completely misses the point in like a way that like i feel like is very american where it's like no he's got to fight back yeah no it's a he turns it into a man in revolt story (laughs) as opposed to a story about like how revolting is inherently humiliating and silly and self-serving you know what i mean that when when k gives a big speech in the novel he's being ridiculous he's not speaking on behalf of his fellow man he's sort of grasping for things to make his speech less ridiculous and digging a deeper hole when he's like and i'm not doing this for me i'm doing it for my fellow man you know because this trial doesn't even fucking matter to me i mean i it's only a trial because like i'm letting you guys have it be a trial it's just like this overtly like cringe comedy like larry david you know american office type stuff you know where you're like oh my god dude please stop like you know kind of reaction and and wells has no sense of that whatsoever but i agree that you can just picture the like Yes, I read it, you know, like, I didn't quite understand what this man is after kind of thing. But let me tell you about me, you know, kind yeah. of kind of reaction to it. But Schweik is, is like, 
again, I was thinking of it's like Gargantua and Pantagruel, where it's like, yes. are you supposed to read this all the way through? I think I think that I, I the author would be yeah. mortified if you said, I sat down and read 100 pages of this. I think they'd be like, no, yeah. why did you do that? You know, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, an, another author I wanted to bring up who also I, I was surprised to find out is actually funny was uh, Gogol. Who, yes, uh, a lot of people point to as being probably an influence on Kafka with his uh, short story The Nose, but his most famous work is probably uh, Dead Souls, which is an unfinished yes work. Um, it was probably close to being finished, the, his second second part, and then he destroyed a lot of it. Um, do you know the whole story about like Gogol's death? No, I don't know much okay. about Gogol. It, Dead like Souls a... is the first one I read, though. I found it okay. at a used bookstore, and I was like, Gogol's supposed to be somebody when I was like 15, and I well, read it. Anyway. I, I like stayed away from Gogol for a long time because I was I read um I read Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, and I was like, never fucking again. <laughs> I'm never gonna like 19th century Russian author. Yeah, right. I'm not I don't care how brilliant you, you don't you don't you don't love all of the scenes of Levin and the horse. Oh my god. Just like, like him looking into a cow's train. eyes. <laughs> it took me like and it took me like half a year to read that book. I, I was yeah. like never again. And so like I, I stayed away from Gogol because he's just one of those names that comes up with like yeah. reverence and he for the record I love Tolstoy. Anyway. Okay. All right. Yeah. Th that's but, fine that you love Tolstoy. But, but I get it. I yeah. get it. <laughs> I, I'm not like I'm not trying to say like people who like Tolstoy yeah. idiots, but it was just like it, it was this impossible read. I had the same just... thing with Dostoevsky, where I okay. read uh, what is, is it called? Diary of a Madman, Confessions of a Madman, uh, 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 something like that. Uh, and I just was like, what am I saying? It's called Notes from the Underground. What the fuck am I fucking oh, talking? Diary of a Madman by Dostoevsky. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is this now I'm uh, yes and I read notes from the underground and was like okay. wanted to, like literally threw it against the wall like hoping to throw it so hard that I broke the book and and had a similar like I hate Dostoevsky like not yeah. like fuck this shit kind of reaction and I read Dead Souls and did not understand it at all okay. it's only well, after I read the overcoat that I went back but I read um well, like, I mean, that was a big surprise for me when I started reading Gogol, and I'm like, oh, he's he's funny. I, I get that, like, this is supposed to be funny, and I, I don't think like anyone had really tipped me off to that. Um, but like, Dead Souls. Well, the, that the, makes sense, you know. Norm Macdonald yeah. was a was a Norm Macdonald, the comedian, was obsessed with Gogol. Like, he was his favorite author and loved his work. And then you see that, and you're like, oh, of course, they have the exact same sense of humor. Those two guys, anyway. I mean, if you're doing an adaptation of Dead Souls in like the 90s, you would have had it starring Norm Macdonald, right? Well, it's um, I, I I thought a little bit of like Mel Brooks, um, you know, who did his own version of. Uh, 12 chairs and i could imagine him doing like a version of gogol like doing dead souls or something similar like that like just yeah. a sense of humor I, I thought like um you know of, of especially like his, his earlier kind of films but um the the premise of dead souls right from the get-go you sort of realize that this is supposed to be comedic because it's this big scheme it's sort of this absurd scam to i'm gonna buy up all these serfs who are on the census who are um actually dead you know it's in between senses so people have to pay tax on them i'm gonna buy them up from people and use them as collateral to take up this like big loan to buy <laughs> i think property for a factory if i if i remember yeah. that right 
Um, so it's him just like going around trying to buy up these uh, dead serfs, um, the rights to them from people all over Russia, Ukraine, and um, and like there, there are people he runs into who are like, wait, what do you want this from me? Yeah. Like, oh, I just want to take it off your hands. He's like, no, you know, I realize yeah. if you want it, there must be something valuable here. And like, it, you know, all these funny characters and like, it's it's very, in some ways it's very over the top actually, if you read it, like a, a lot of it's like very outrageous. And I, I thought it was hilarious. Um, and it, it ends, uh, I think like sort of around the point where he's being like chased off by a big crowd, which is also kind of a, <laughs> a good non-ending for, um, for Dead Souls. But Gogol, towards the end of his life, um, it, it reads almost like a Gogol story where he kind of fell under the influence of this religious advisor, this like personal kind of uh, like almost like a one man cult kind of a thing where the religious advisor convinced Gogol that like, hey, your stories are actually like evil and they're going to send you to hell. And Gogol burned up a bunch of his own stories, destroyed a lot of his unfinished writing. And he was told to fast for um, penitence and he was fasting. And um, this contributed to some health problems and uh, basically led directly to his death. Although some people say that when they exhumed his body during the Soviet era to move it, I think that they moved the cemetery. They said, I forget if they said like the body was like all contorted, like he was probably buried alive, maybe. Oh no. <laughs> Some people think maybe Gogol was buried alive, um, but he, he was like basically killed by this uh, religious advisor forcing him to go without food or anything like that for, for too long a period of time. Yeah. He was definitely the era of crank religious advisors in, oh, yeah. in Russia. Well, like, now you hear about like, oh, Daniel Kaluuya is this like religious advisor who you have to like go through to talk to him on set. And it's like, oh, I hope he doesn't end up like in, in trouble. <laughs> and that's weird. Robert Downey Jr. apparently has the same thing. You know, I mean, I, like, I don't like Robert Downey Jr. I know he has had like history of substance abuse. So maybe like if that's what it takes to keep you. Yeah on the straight and narrow maybe that's that's just what it takes but um yeah i mean it, it is one of those things that like raises an eyebrow for me whenever you're like somebody's got like a religious advisor or they yeah if anybody has a spiritual advisor that's not the pope like i don't want to or even the or the dalai lama i'm immediately like so they're in a cult so this guy's taking all their money and completely going to run them into the ground just like you know i think but i also think like the cult is like the defining institution of this century i think that that virtually everything becomes a cult we can talk about herman brock someday uh, you know and and the sleepwalkers and sort of his insight that like the end result of Protestantism is like individual value systems for every single person, which is helpless in the face of cults. You know, like if you have to wake up and create God every morning, like it, the results are going to be nuts. The results are going to be absolutely insane. If every person is in charge of inventing God every single day of their life, it's just going to be insane. Um, I would think, you know, this is a great conversation. The last book I wanted to talk about, because it's another favorite author of mine, it's a novella, is Herman Melville's Billy Bud, which I think is most similar to The Trial in that, um, I don't know if you know the backstory, but Melville sort of lost his mind uh, and stopped writing, uh, not re didn't really lose his mind. He, he like got beaten down by, by 
being a writer and went and was working as a, as a clerk and um, only published poetry for like three decades, right? That's all he did. He stopped right. writing narrative fiction and his poetry is fucking terrible. He's completely tenured. <laughs> Not a single piece of it is any good. As good as he is a novelist, he is as bad a poet, right? Truly terrible work. And he started writing Billy Budd to be a poem in a, in a book of poetry about sailors, each poem was going to be about like a made up sailor. And instead it turned into a work of prose fiction. And he was writing it during the last years of his life. And it was sort of like his return to prose and it's phenomenal. It makes you go, God damn it. We wasted decades of him not writing prose, but maybe it was just charging it up to write this, but it was in no way finished. It was like completely like struck through with corrections and errors and additions and out of order and just a, you know, a, a very big mess when he was done. And his his widow sort of went through and put it together and his literary executors went through. And then later on, uh, academics went through and reconstructed it and made Billy Budd, which is overtly great. Like they've, they've edited it and put it together and it's overtly a work of Melville. It's It's among his best stuff. It's phenomenally great. But it is also an unfinished thing that was assembled posthumously. It's very much like the trial in that way, where it's, I compare them both, not because I bike both writers, but because you read them and you're like, this is done and worth reading. But then there are moments where you go, oh, what's up with that? I wonder what he really meant there. You know what I mean? You do have those moments where you have to acknowledge, I wonder what he really meant, which is what turns us into Kafkaologists is just that inevitably you do have those moments where you can't say that's a weird hiccup of text. And as an artist, I'm going to take that hiccup of the text as part of his artistic identity and consume it into my narrative interpretation of the text, into my, into my understanding of this aesthetic in some way, right? Narrative aesthetic understanding of it. You say, is that right? Or is that something I need to figure out what he actually meant? And it's really unfortunate with both of them, because I'd say both of them are like 98% of the way there. Yeah. But then you do have those little moments where you say, I wonder what's up with that, you know? Again, like, I, I think it's a sort of archaeological process where you just sort of have to have some degree of guesswork and make these connections for yourself and assume that like, maybe there was some intent here at one point that it's been broken through maybe being unfinished maybe having an editor futz with it or or whatever weird like, translation you know weird <laughs> translations like i mean i'm it's very similar to like when i, I read about uh, a lot of like ancient history and archaeology and you know it's like ah we don't really know how gilgamesh got from here to here but uh, <laughs> that, that tablet's broken so he, he does i guess you know or, like you assume that there's cultural ideas or things like that that are just kind of lost like there's no way to fully retrieve them and it you know you can't even necessarily make guesswork sometimes when you run into these things that don't have a, a obvious meaning or a clear place in the overall text so that's that's kind of how i feel about stuff like that um let me ask you for this yeah. project which i'm going to stick to 
which is just going chapter by chapter. Do you think it's a good idea for me to continue just sticking to the text and ignoring the Kafkaology and background and returning? Do you think it's possible for me to do that? Do you think do you think that's a worthwhile endeavor? Um, no, I, I think it's it's a good endeavor. I I don't know, like ultimately what kind of conclusions you'll come to because they might be completely different than if I tried the same sort of experiment of going through chapter by chapter, just going through the text. Um, you know, and like, I, I think, like you said, it does kind of naturally lead you back to the biographical information and trying to sort through that and trying to get an impression of your interpretation of who you think Kafka was to fill in some of these gaps or. Do you think we would do that if the letters and diaries had never been published? Do you think it would I think be more I would, accepted I, as I don't an know artwork? if everyone else would. Yeah. I think like, I'm, you know, I'm just the type of person who tries to go digging for that sort, sort of information. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> But like sometimes you do look for that information and for certain authors or filmmakers or whoever, it's just not there. Like it's, yeah. um, I mean, you know, going back to Alex Germain for a minute, like one, one thing that was a relief is like, oh, I, I'm really interested in this person. Oh, thank God. Like he, he was very vocal and did interviews for 40 years. Like, yeah. uh, you know, I could actually piece together a biography. I could piece together an interpretation of his career, but he had that, um, I actually, I think Svetlana Carmelita wrote it, but she, there's the introduction to their screenplay for The Fall of Okar, where they talked about like, oh, when we got involved with this, uh, you know, we realized pretty early on that this was not like our other historical films, which were all like 20th century, you know, we were interviewing people who were still alive, we still remember the era, this was ancient history, and it's like everything was so fragmentary, like there was hardly anything we had to go on. Yeah. Um, which, which you know, left a strong impression on me. If you ever read that, um, I forget the exact phrasing, but it's like, you know, the, the, there was like hardly anything that was passed down through the the eons or the epoch yeah. to, to us. Uh, so it, it was- But here's know, the, the thing. I, I yeah. feel like there's, there's so much emphasis on that stuff. What I talk about in the first episode is Surviving Desire, the Hal Hartley movie, where he's a literary professor. And in class, every class, he's just reading the same paragraph from Brothers Karamazov over and over to this class. And they're losing their fucking minds, right? <laughs> and uh, it's a really important paragraph. And then at the end of the movie, when he's defeated and feels like a failure and feels like he's just been broken by life, he gives the like, here's Dostoevsky's biography. Here's what happened. Here's when he's led in front of a firing squad. Okay. This is the year he wrote this book. And to me, I always want to have that. The material itself is what's interesting and yes. focus much harder on the material to get most out of the material because that's what the audience that's what the artist actually wants to express to you you know what i mean that that that's that what quixote you know what cervantes wants you to read is quixote you know that's what he wants you to read and to focus on it really really hard in that way is is sort of what i always try to do i do feel like there's a distraction of what year was this written what was the government, you know, where, what did his parents do? You know, what was that like local yeah. zoning? Well, and often those things that they don't necessarily factor into the writing in a meaningful way or that they push you away from it. They, they push you away. But also like at the same time, I'm not enough of a like death of the author kind of person to be like, Oh wait, th this, uh, this person's father was like a 
staunch atheist and he grew up in this atheist household and then he went off and made the holy mountain like yeah you know that seems significant you know and then like later on he goes and does uh Jodorowsky's um, biographical films and it feels like oh that that was I, I was right that was important you know so yeah. like there are there are times where like I, I think like it is important to understand things about the author uh um, yeah even if it's not about their their biography, even if it's just about where they came from, the point in time, their, their life, like sometimes you do need these things to add some some degree of context. But I, I do agree with you that like it is important to focus on the text above all. I, I think like that's kind of what drives things. Like not so much the biographical details, but what I think is more misleading are the interpretations. You know, yeah. I mean, like you run into this a lot when you read Shakespeare where you realize like, oh, like there's no biographical details really. So like every author writing about Shakespeare, it's all interpretive. Yeah. And it's all like <laughs> basically worthless. Uh, so, yeah. You know, it's, it's weird how many people become professional writers who have no understanding of art, professional critical writers and reviewers who have no understanding of art. It's genuinely bizarre. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I was talking about this with uh, about archaeology sort of recently too, since I keep bringing this up, but it's like, you realize how much of archaeology especially I was thinking about like uh, Mesoamerican archaeology, it's interpreting art. Uh, and like a lot of the people you realize who are doing that are not necessarily good at interpreting art. You know, they're not artistically minded. They're not interested in these the, things outside of like, oh, maybe yeah, this was a god. Like, the, Yeah, <laughs> the role that like, art plays in anybody's interior yeah. life, which is yes. not necessarily rational or useful you know what i mean that a lot of art is just i like that thing and that's yeah. our relationship to it and it that sounds uncomplicated but it's very complicated actually like I, you know? I talk about this a lot with people who are really into um slasher movies from like 1980s yeah. where i feel like everyone trying to moralize that and look at it from like an outside in perspective like an outsider's perspective either they simultaneously completely overcomplicate it and undercomplicate the relationship that people have watching these movies where it's like, you know, when you realize that you're watching it and enjoying it, like, yeah, sometimes you're the victim, sometimes you're the slasher, you're the way you identify with these movies and enjoy them is like both simpler and more complex than the way that people like to say, yes. oh, like clearly it's like the slasher is punishing yeah, the people having sex as this symbol of conservatism, and like that's not it. Like, yeah. that's not what people are getting out of this. That's also, also, into them, so. yeah. Also, people are able to distinguish between fantasy and reality a lot more than they're given credit for. When you yeah. talk about the archaeological stuff, and it's like they believe this snake god lived in the sky, and it's like, well. They, they understand that the snake god exists in their fantasy space in some way. They don't think if they stare at the sky long enough, they're, they're going to see the snake god. Well, you know what I mean? Some like are that's, that literal, and they're usually like the weirdos. Like, yeah, they're the like dumb ones, street. and everybody's yeah. like, you're a fucking idiot. You yeah. know, like people, people understand their own fantasy space better than interpreters do, you know, understand fantasy space. Slasher films is, is a great example of that where it's there's many things going on and the pool of audience one side can be dudes who just get in the boner to see beautiful ladies chopped up and there can also be feminists watching it who understand that this is about reaction and male desire and drives and and all of that you know the men women chainsaw stuff uh and those can be in the same pool of audiences for any given thing that's that's why 
an audience and fandom is poisonous because it's the canon, right? One interpretation of this artwork is correct and yeah. one relationship to this artwork is correct and anything else makes you outgroup, which frequently turns the artworks themselves outgroup because the artworks are more complicated than that. You know, George Lucas yeah. is more complicated than that. So he becomes outgroup to the fandom, which is the fandom is insisting on monolithic behaviors and monolithic understanding of it, you know, and the text generally, even in the dumbest artworks, have a multitude of interpretations and relationships possible to it. I mean, maybe not the dumbest, maybe well, not like <laughs> Disney Channel shit. Well, but, like, what, what's a fun, very simple example? Um, just like a very easy example is the description of uh, Gregor in uh, Metamorphosis, which yeah. like, so many people render as a cockroach. And like I, I showed you yeah. the artwork I had done for uh, this animated yeah. version I wanted to make. And you, you commented, you said it's it's not it's the word vermin gets used it, it, a lot it is a vermin like yeah you know the way it describes all these legs and they're, they're puny and yeah like sort of yeah, i just tried to go by the text and i turned it into sort of this um lima bean thing with pincers <laughs> and little like spindly legs and i gave him sort of a human face to be expressive um but like it was just like you know you read the text it doesn't say cockroach yeah and like one of my favorite um, adaptations it's the russian film version i don't know if you've seen it where it treats it like a mental breakdown where this character he doesn't literally turn into um a bug he, he his mind breaks and he thinks that he's a bug or he's acting like a bug because yeah. he just can't accept going to work that day and like things like that are very interesting to me because even if it's not like the definitive interpretation and in how i read it it's like oh like that's a really interesting way of looking at this and I, I yeah. think like I, I find that more that valuable. reminds me uh so much of when I was in high school and I was working as a dishwasher in a hotel that had three <laughs> banquet halls and two restaurants and it was just miserable hot work in the summertime doing dishwashing and one day I woke up and I was like I'm just going to tell my parents I've gone insane I'm just going to tell everybody I've gone insane and they'll leave me alone and I won't have to go to work today. And I'm just, I'll tell people I'm an insane person now. I'm going to lay here in bed and now I'm insane. And people will go, oh, well, that's leave him alone. He's insane now. His, his mind is completely broken. He's insane. So I very much like that interpretation of that story because that's how, what that story is about. Does, it, it makes you realize, like the absurdity is not turning into a bug. The absurdity is like a human being has to get up and go to work today. Yeah. Like animal that evolved Even if like, you're a bug. Yes. Even if you're a bug, you still have to put your fucking hat on and it's like, yeah. oh, Jesus Christ, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Martin, let's, let's wrap this up. This is a great conversation. I could talk to you forever uh, I, I, about I know. All I've this got stuff. so many things I didn't even bring up. Topic. Yeah. I mean, cause I've, let's, let's forget that we're not going to end it. Cause we didn't even talk about the best version of Kafka that's been committed to, to film, which is Brandon Small's version of it, of the Kafka rock opera from home movies, right, which is obviously right. the best version. Although, which I Franz, agree. Franz Kafka. <laughs> is Franz Kafka. Franz Kafka. Um, uh, although I shouldn't credit it fully to Brandon Small because it's the guitarist. I can't remember that character's name. It's his, it's his project as much as anybody's. But it is funny that that adaptation it's like the Soderbergh movie where it's not just metamorphosis it's like a combination of biography and the fictive work and I think that that really is a tell about how Broad positioned Kafka's work 
in the popular imagination where when people adapt it, if they're trying to be, quote, unquote, more true to the work, right? If they don't want to be Orson Welles making the trial and throwing it out, they end up with these like hybrid biography fiction versions. I mean, I think like in theory, that's a very smart way to adapt certain authors if you're going to do like a biographical story, because like a lot of authors are not necessarily people whose lives would lend themselves to narrative very well, or, uh, you know, I'm like, you're also trying to make something cinematic out of writing, which is not necessarily easy. Yeah. But you know, there are like films that do this, which I, I think are good. Um, you know, Mishima, Life in Four Chapters, or Naked Lunch, I think are both good examples of, you know, fusing an author's biography with their work in a way that I I think is interesting and compelling. Um, The Soderbergh Kafka film, I I don't think is successful. No, it's not a good movie. (laughs) (laughs) A great soundtrack, though. And uh, and it's weird, because that was one of those, like, legendary scripts that everybody was like, Lim Dobbs wrote this phenomenal script, and nobody would make it. And then Soderbergh parlayed his power into getting this script that nobody wanted to make made. And then you see it, and you're like, well, of course, nobody should have made this. Like, of course it shouldn't have been made. I mean, he's particularly uh, not the director to do it. um, I haven't seen it yet. My friend saw it when it was showing at the TIFF Lightbox where I think think they said that Soderbergh turned it into like a silent film with like intertitles and like completely reworked it and used footage that wasn't in the original version and stuff. But I have no idea how that that plays. But uh, like, it's interesting, this idea of, you know, I'm going to take an author's life and I'm, I'm going to use their work and make something make a new work of art basically out of out of both of those but it's I, there's so many problems with that kafka film the soderbergh one. Like <laughs> yeah. it's, it, it's hard to even like list them all but um <laughs> <laughs> but uh i i remember um kubrick who we mentioned earlier said something very interesting about Kafka when he was working on The Shining where he said that people always want to adapt Kafka in black and white and they feel like that's just like stark black and white world and he thought that like if you're going to adapt Kafka it should feel as mundane as possible everything should be like presumably like he's talking about this while working on The Shining I I think like the implication is that like everything should look like The Shining does yeah but um, like to me that was sort of an interesting insight and I always think about like these things that we take for granted in these adaptations, like, you know, every every lead in, like every film based on a Kafka work is like in some ways depicted as a, as a Kafka stand-in, which yeah. like, is that really the case? Like, sh- should we take that for granted or should we question that? Like, yeah. you know, what if you cast somebody who's not a Kafka type as Joseph K? Like, could you, should you? Would yeah. you? I I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's an interesting thing to discuss. That like, hey, maybe this is not. Maybe we shouldn't treat this as uh, a fusion with his autobiography. Maybe we should reconsider that aspect of it. You know, the the lead in a film adaptation of Kafka should be a Kafka's type <laughs> Kafka yeah. surrogate. You know, I, I sort of think like, you know, what would happen if you were to cast uh, somebody who's not. A Kafka type as Joseph K, you know, like 
Yeah. What would well, that be like? Uh, uh, Milan Kundera, who's a big influence on my thinking in Kafka, is very similar to Kafka in his writing style in that he doesn't describe physicality unless it's important to understanding the character. So like uh, in uh, uh, Unbearable Lightness of Being, he describes Therese's breast as being sort of uh, small with large nipples, like a children's drawing of what a woman's body would look like, like a crude children's drawing. But he won't describe like other shit other than that. And Kafka has the same thing of he won't describe what people look like unless it's like the washerwoman who's beautiful in some way, you know, or that the the audience of old men uh, all have white beards and the beards look like bunches of little claws. They're so dry, right? He's He's not going to like, describe what the room looks like he's not going to describe what these fucking characters look like and that's one thing i love about him i hate yep. descriptive writing i i, I was I, one thing i always feel like is a tip off to somebody not being a great writer is when you have the adjective overload yeah i, I feel yeah. like that's usually like a you know I, i'm sure there were great authors who like use tons of adjectives but for me that's always like a little red flag that like yeah, well, maybe, maybe this person doesn't know what they're doing. <laughs> like, I think I think it's when every the clothes that every character are wearing get yeah. described is I, a tip you know, off I to a bad a writer. In screenplays, and I always feel like it's it's a bad sign when somebody's like describing like it has nothing to do with the story and like yeah. You know, and then you have a, like a good piece of writing where it's like, oh, like his shiny belt buckle. And then maybe the belt yeah. buckle saves him from a bullet. Like, yeah. you know, like not that everything well, but needs it's to be like, like Hollywood set up and pay off. Yeah. But I feel like people who are but specific just about their descriptions. The single gesture that allows you to see the entire scene. That's yeah. what Kafka's really great at is he'll describe a room as being damp and reeking and you right. don't need to know anything else about it. You know, he will just very quickly be able to find the single uh, item gesture image that sets the entire scene. And that's what, you know, really good authors do, uh, you know, just, just, again, it's like uh, Kundera talking about in, in uh, Death in Venice, where Thomas Mann talks about the guys walking through the house and he hears something that sounds like a ring dropping in a sink basin, right? And Kundera's like, what he's doing with that is he's creating silence, right? Because it's got to be quiet enough for you to hear that sound in another room. So then you have that silence sort of echoing throughout the rest of the scene, because that's been the only thing you've heard. And that's not a sustainable noise. That's a brief noise. And then you're hearing nothing else in it, right? And I think that good authors do that, you know, bad authors do. And it was so quiet. It was the quietest quiet you ever heard being quiet. Literally, the quiet was so (laughs) quiet. You wouldn't believe this quiet. The quiet was deafening this quiet did you know how quiet it was you know (laughs) and that's very much the iowa writer school you know style of just like let me tell you all about this let me paint the picture which i just fucking hate you know i used to find like just from my own writing i'm like how does anyone make it to like a 400 page novel because i i would like write the scene and it would be done and it would be like you know, 10 pages or yeah. it would be like fairly uh, like, it takes me a long time to kind of write things, but I, I feel like I'm somebody who's very focused on condensing and trying to make things read in a way that flows very well and very clearly. So it, it's interesting to me to read other authors who are, uh, I don't know, like whenever they talk about like 
economical. They usually don't like narrative economy, but specific, I, I feel like is, is maybe the better term. And yeah. you realize like some authors who are, who are laying it on thick aren't necessarily good at that. So, well, I um, love to, just to, to, to contrast, I love life of the mind novel of ideas authors. I love Robert Musil and Herman okay. Brock, you know, right. I, That's... and those guys make these massive books where like the scene will be like a guy picks up a pen and it's 400 pages. You know what I mean? I mean, that's Not a whole that other bad, thing. But, yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's, if somebody's talking about ideas and interior life and sort of yeah. the way idea and mental space interacts with character that I really like, but we don't spend any time thinking about the purpleness of a man's tie, you know, uh, and maybe we do, but we don't follow it up with the greenness of his jacket and the brownness of his shoes and the kind of, you know what I mean? Like if we it's might get focused which, on, uh, yeah. Have you read any of like the latter Stephen King books? Uh, no, but he's somebody even in the earlier ones okay. where I'm like, you got to stop this man. I don't know who told you. <laughs> well, it's like, I don't, um, I, it's really fucked up. I'm like, I don't know who told you you're a writer, but you got to knock it off with the writer stuff. Just like stick to your stories and your dialogue and your characters. But like, sir, you are not a writer and you got to stop this. <laughs> I, I've never been that, that severe. Like I've always liked <laughs> Carrie and Dead Zone and stuff like that. But I feel They'll like- They'll just have passages that are yeah. about like the gold of the wheat field looked like the blood and you're like oh my god dude <laughs> like no i i know i know but well like the for me the the biggest stephen king project were his uh, dark tower books which was his yeah. long-running series and it kind of hit the point where like they were developing slowly it was almost like the way people talk about um, game of thrones and then there was that point in time where stephen king got um hit by a car yeah and almost died and then he recovered and very quickly finished off this series. They were coming out at a certain point, like, oh, he's just, like, the the next three books are like, all, all, they're all on their way. Like, it's it's coming up on the ending, and it all came like very quickly. It felt like it was this thing of, um, I don't want to leave this unfinished. I like, I need to get this finished, and I, I feel like the the quality kind of suffered for that. <laughs> if you read those books, um, I, I feel like there's a distinct shift in quality when you're reading the earlier books and I, like I loved uh, drawing of the three and the wastelands and then you kind of get to the later ones and it feels like it, this would be so much better if it was just a little bit more thought through and cut down and fleshed out and you know the ending was still satisfying but it was like oh my god like I, I really wish you hadn't rushed to get here <laughs> yeah. it, it's interesting to think about like points of um an artist's career where they could have died. Like uh, we, we talked a lot about um, Kurosawa a while back. I, I wanted to write an article for the Pink Smoke site and gave up on it because I got depressed watching the discontent so many yeah. times. But uh, like, I, um, it's really interesting if you watch Kurosawa's career, you know, and then you get to Redbeard and it feels like, oh, this is the culmination of like everything he's like, this is his final film. Yeah, he like, hits a wall. It's like yeah. a full speed car that runs straight into a wall. It's incredible. And then he goes off and he, like he, he tries to sort of reinvent himself with the uh, Dodisca Den, and it uh, it doesn't work, and it flops, and he tries to kill himself. And I always think like like what? How would we talk about Kurosawa's career if like Dodisca Den was his final film? It would be like that guy with the flawless perfectly contained filmography and that one weird one at the end like you yeah. wouldn't see it as and like that one movie that to... killed him 
you know, it wouldn't be the stepping stone to, you know, Kagamusha and Ran and Dreams and all that stuff that yeah. came later, but like, oh, he made that one weird kind of out of touch one at the end where he tried <laughs> to work in color and it did, like, what? <laughs> you know, so it's, it's interesting too, where you have the possibility that an artist can reinvent themselves. Like, I don't know, are you, um, have you seen the animated films by Satoshi Kon? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, to me, those feel so of a piece and Paprika is kind of like the perfect capstone on his yeah. filmography that when you find out like oh like he was working this other project when he died uh i think dream machine or dreaming machine and you know he put a dent in it but it's it's one of those projects that'll probably i know it's like the, the studio after he died so like oh we're gonna finish this and then like years and years later nothing's really come a bit uh but it's like wh- where would he have gone after paprika like <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. It, it, it's like I, I would have to watch the. I've seen like little pictures and things from Dream Machine or Dreaming Machine, and you know, there's robots and things. But you kind of wonder, like, was there some other aspect of it? But you know, would yeah. he still be playing with like layers of reality or memory or you know, what what would he have done? Or was he just going to completely reinvent himself? So like, there are these artists who die at a certain point in time and leave some unfinished work that make you wonder. Not so much about the work itself, but the possibility possibility of where their career might have gone. It's a little bit like what you're saying about Melville, where uh, you if know, he had, like, but but no, but but Moby Dick is his is his red beard, where it's just like right, right. where can you even go from Moby yeah. Dick, you know? Um, and I do, and I do think Kafka. It's actually interesting. You're making me think about Kafka in all this context. I don't feel like this is incomplete work. I don't no. wonder what else he's done. You do strangely feel like Kafka, we got everything from well, him. We got relatively young, but then at yeah. the same time, you wonder like, I mean, um, Kafka, I think his, his sisters died in the Holocaust. And like, yeah. you know, I, I, like on some level, I feel like if Kafka didn't die when he did, he, he might not have lived much longer anyway. Something horrible would have happened. You know, something horrible yeah. would have happened. But like, hypothetically, it's like, you know, what would Kafka have written about if he lived through the German occupation and the Holocaust? Like, what, you know, what, what would what, he what, have been like under Stalinism like, and the Soviet satellite states exactly, that he like, perfectly predicts? I, I almost feel like, like, I mean, you talked about like burning his stories anyway, but I feel like, you know, if he lived to that, I, I don't think he was writing the trial in this sort of predictive way like it was yeah. meant to be this like prophecy i think like if he lived to that era like he probably would have destroyed it only was still alive <laughs> you yeah. know like I, I feel like like how could you even write about this or publish this uh in that way that he does but it's i don't know it, it's just guesswork to to imagine how he would have reacted to these things and now we're kind of get, getting back into the kafkaologist territory <laughs> so yeah you know but it, it's it's an interesting question because like you said his work does feel so complete and it's hard to even imagine him taking a, another turn into something else you know adding anything to it it's yeah. hard to imagine him adding anything like, to it like i don't even picture an ending for the castle like yeah. it's it's not like i wonder where this will like it oh that's the end perfect <laughs> you know yeah this is uh, like there are other stories by other authors like i talked a little bit about sanditon uh when i did this uh article about the period films yeah and like jane austen she completed the first couple chapters and then died so you have this it, it's kind of a perfect start to a story where it's like oh i you know 
I want to step in and see where I can take this. And you imagine all the places you could take the story. And there's a TV series out now. I think it's on its second season, which is doing just that, where it's like, we're going to use the story as a starting point and explore where it could have gone. And you can kind of turn it into this ongoing television show. It's, it's a great idea of what to do with that project, which is this unfinished thing. But, um, you know, some, some works feel incomplete in an open-ended way and some works feel incomplete in a way that's not open-ended so yeah yeah that's and that's very true that kafka does not feel open-ended it really yeah. doesn't it feels like you're somehow getting the full thing yeah you know and and maybe that's an illusion maybe that's a deception of it maybe that's maybe, why you like... end up on this path of kafkaology because you feel like you've been given something that can be understood perfectly that it is a body of work that can be understood um and then when you get a little too close to it you say oh wait that's the courtroom scene where the lady's getting raped in the back right yeah uh or is it even the i shouldn't use that word the happening of it is way more ambiguous as to as to what's going on there getting her clothes ripped off and felt up in the back of a courtroom um you know, just that kind of stuff where you go, oh, right, I forgot. This thing is something that I'm going to have to do some of the work of putting this together in a way that I don't with other books that are presented to me as being finished. There are some unfinished works too, I feel like are not, they don't necessarily warrant the work of trying to imagine yeah. what the finished version, or it feels like they could never have been finished. Like um, I was talking to um, somebody about uh, Eisenstein's Que Viva Mexico, which was kind of just <laughs> yeah. like him dicking around with Upton Sinclair's money, I think. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how serious, like, and you sort of feel like, ah, this, like, I, I don't know if he could have ever completed this thing because I'm not sure if his heart was ever in it. It, it doesn't seem I, to have an idea behind I, it. It too. feels like there's no, like, like, I don't know, um, oh, sure, I'll, I'll make your movie and take your money. But it's like one of those projects where it's like, ah, like to, you know, to imagine what could have been. It, it doesn't feel that way at all when you see that. Um, it, it's, you know, there's some like interesting images and stuff like that, but it, it's not it's not a great what if or uh, same like there's a. Uh, there's, you know, the story about uh, Terrence Malick working on the theater adaptation of uh, Sancho the Bailiff. Yeah. And I think like Bailey which would have been be so in, fucking cool. <laughs> which <laughs> would have been cool, but at the same time, it's like, like it's not a great what if because it's I, I'm not sure if his heart was really in it, and that's kind of why you like fucked off and <laughs> didn't yeah. make that. So it's it's one of those things where you know I'm much more interested when they was talk about like Terrence Malick maybe doing his version of uh, the Elephant Man yeah something like that is like more interesting to me where it's like oh I wonder what he would have done with that that biography and how different it might have been from the Lynch version even though like it's it's funny that there's a lot of crossover between those two Sissy Spacek and yeah um, but you know then and then like you read about the history of um Tree of Life back when it was Q he had been working on that for such a long time um and then there was all these like weird it was his i guess response to 2001 in a way but mixed with like the autobiographical stuff and um but like you read about the early versions of what eventually turned into tree of life Hugh was uh like had the scene of like this giant buddha underwater breathing fish in and out and like weird weird ideas and like even fairly late into 
but it's development there were like scenes like extensive scenes that were going to be in india in tree of life and then uh, like i feel like i i wish he kind of pared it down even more into the final well, film because when i watch yeah. it it's like oh, i'm gonna make this like film that's really about my my parents and my brother who passed away and Oh, also here's the sequence of like the birth of creation and yeah. everything leading up till now. And it's like, oh, wait, you don't need that. Like that's already well, but, in the movie. It's yeah, just... Terrence Malick, I've compared to Melville before in that he's he has no talent for poetic imagery. Uh, Terrence Malick, the poetic, dreamlike, surrealist imagery of that movie is a fucking embarrassment. You know, like heaven, heaven is a place with the river where you walk with mom and dad and all your dead pets are there. And there's a door that you walk through and it's just a door frame. It's like, get the fuck out of here. You know, sky mommy dancing in the floating. It's just like, it's an embarrassment. It's a total fucking embarrassment. The poetic imagery in that movie. It's as bad as Melville stuff, right? And I get... I get why people like that film and want to go to bat and defend that, but it's People think it's I'm like bad. crazy when I say like, I, I prefer to the wonder, like people are like, oh, you're like an insane person. But like, especially- um, Yeah, like, to the wonder is at least grounded, you know? Well, like it's, 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 one, it's one he's in his wheelhouse. About, um, like Knight of Cups, not to again, get off too off topic, yeah. but like, you know, people talk about like, oh, like it doesn't have the, the poetry of his images and this and that. And I, I think it's very deliberate. If you watch that film, it's like, the rhythm of it is so specific um every time it's about to settle on an image and you're right about to soak in that like hey maybe i'm looking at something beautiful it cuts away to the next thing and it's this character sort of without any any grounding who's kind of constantly like moving on to the next thing the next moment the next thing in his life and it's like he never settles on anything and the film won't let you settle so it's it's funny to me when people are like oh that film is is not beautiful in the way that like uh, a tree of life is beautiful and it's um, that, that's a whole other thing. But. Ma- Malik is really yeah. interesting to bring up in the context of Kafka. When I say it, it feels like we have a complete body of work from Kafka. If yeah. Malik had died before the thin red line, the oh, opposite yeah. would have been true. It would have felt like we don't have his body of work. We don't have his films, right? We don't have the work he did, you know, or if he had died when thin red line was getting yeah. completed, you wouldn't, you'd feel like, oh, the body of work isn't there. We never got it. Yeah. And that's an interesting thing. He's a filmmaker who, even when his films are done, they feel perpetually incomplete. He's an inveterate tinkerer. He's somebody that feels like like none of these movies are done. I mean, like... Well, to the wonder and song to yeah. song and those movies, they in feel fun. Life, now there's an extended They feel version, incomplete. Um, they feel yeah. like unfinished movies, even as they're finished by him. They feel like he's he didn't finish this yet is how they feel when I watch them. Like he's going to right. work on them more or they need more work or something. You know, he's a very strange artist in that way. He's and now that he has a lot of work, but it still feels incomplete. Yeah. He's like inveterately incomplete as an artist. And I don't mean that in a bad way, even though I clearly don't like much of his yeah, well, work. Like, it's, I, I, it's an I don't interesting think that's contrast. an insult to say somebody who's yeah. like an open-ended artist uh, in that way. I, I think like, because I'm a little bit younger and I, I got into him, I remember when Thin Red Line came out and it wasn't, it didn't feel special to me. Like it was yeah. just like, oh, this is like another war movie I'm watching with my father kind of a thing. Yeah. And then like, um, you know, I, I saw The New World when I was a teenager and that was kind of the the entry point in for me. Yeah. Um, but like, I was not, I was not really aware of that era when like, 
oh, Terrence Malick's coming back after like yeah. decades. He's coming back with this war film that everyone's in. And it felt like the, the return of the great American filmmaker or something yeah. like that, you know. But like, you know, it's funny, like Marcus Pinn is one of the only people I can sort of talk about this with. I'm like... Badlands and Days of Heaven, they're okay. They're, they're not my yeah. favorites, you know, but you can tell that like for people who are, I think especially a little bit, um, I don't mean to say like older, but just like a little bit older than I am that Terrence Malick, those films and his kind of disappearance and return represented something very different for me, who's somebody who like got into him later on. You can only compare it. He was, he became in his lifetime, a mythic figure. The only person to compare the feeling to is Kubrick where the new movies were like, you know, an eclipse that you had like a fucking human sacrifice ritual prepared around you know what i mean like they were like this is this i can't believe this is happening this is crazy is it going to happen it's happening you know kind of thing it felt very like cosmically huge and it's kubrick and malik are the only two i can think of in that way within my lifetime that had that sort of massive funny um, weight behind them i uh whenever you read like alternate history fiction it's always stuff like you know what if germany won world war ii what if the south won the american civil war but i I, at some point wanted to write um an alternate history kind of short story or like novella type thing that would be an alternate history of hollywood if uh, star wars had flopped (laughs) part part of the like idea in there was to make the george lucas almost like that where he would disappear for 20 years and like oh you know he worked a little bit on like you know some coppola stuff and you know he shot this or did some like little projects and then have this like cult kind of develop over time and then have this like big return of the 90s (laughs) yeah it would be like very different because he like in some ways he did disappear like you know he hadn't directed a film between star wars and the the prequels yeah so like i I thought like to take that idea and just kind of turn it into something very different and yeah and it would have been interesting if he wasn't pressured to come back and do more star wars shit and you know like how how that might have changed the film industry as a whole because you sort of get like it's funny the whole like oros boros of of the hollywood film industry where it was like at a certain point every hollywood film was trying to be star wars to some degree they all wanted to be that blockbuster and now it's just like star wars is trying to be star wars (laughs) it's like oh my god the snake ate its tail and it's gone around for like seconds um well everything has got to be extended universe now everything has got to be part of this it's it's funny the whole like extended universe thing like I, I was talking to, I think maybe John Cribbs or somebody about like, it wasn't that long ago where like cinephiles were all talking about how how cool it is. And like, oh, like, did you know that that character in that Tarantino film is the brother of this character? And yeah. like, oh, Kevin Smith, like, wow, Jane Silent Bob showed up and chasing Amy. Like this was considered yeah. like a cool thing if you could tie your films together in some way and show that there was some bigger world. And now that that's like the thing that every every film franchise is chasing people are like oh i I wish films were more disconnected yeah yeah no for sure for sure um yeah let's uh did you have any more stuff on on the trial you wanted to talk about this is a really great conversation it's going to be much when i when when i asked you to do it i was like we'll do like a half an hour probably like a half an hour episode here i haven't been watching the clock is that what we're is that what we're clocking in with right now about a half an hour um well it, like I, I tweeted at you i'm like like oh, do you really want to keep it to half an hour <laughs> like this is such a big topic and there's so much to say and like 
there's so many of these unfinished projects uh art and film and literature that like i haven't even read yet that i'm curious does it this will be the last question i asked to end it on does it matter to you if an artwork is finished or not does it matter to you as an audience when you you read it in terms of does it hold you back from from in some way does it hold you back does it matter to you and i don't mean in terms of all the stuff we discussed about you try and interpret or that i mean can you fully embrace an artwork that's unfinished? I, I think absolutely. I, I have no problem with that. I think, you know, there, there's like a million asterisks. You have to kind of stick on to that. And like, you know, it depends <laughs> on like how unfinished we're talking about. But uh, uh, no, like it, it, it doesn't dissuade me if I'm going to approach a work of art. And, you know, when I read about like, oh, like Edith Wharton has a has an unfinished book, The Buccaneers. Like, I want to read that. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm interested whatever that is, you know. <laughs> or th- there are lots of examples of unfinished works um, that I'm, I'm interested in because they are unfinished. Like, if I would hear you about rather, film... Would you rather a work be unfinished, like Kafka, or overfinished, like Blade Runner? <laughs> I mean, like, I'm somebody who's always interested in these works of art with scars on them. Like I'm, I'm always kind of drawn to films like The Swimmer or Magnificent Ambersons or 13th Warrior, like regardless of their quality or their virtues, just partly because like you can see the scenes and it kind of gives you some insight into the way that things are constructed and how art functions and works. Um, so like my, my preference is that it, it I, I think I would rather have a, a work of art be incomplete than than overfinished and like you can't see the seams yeah you can't see how it was constructed you know it's like this uh architectural principle of like showing some of the the building materials let them be exposed to like give you some insight into like how this thing is constructed it's always fascinating to me interesting you know why uh we're friends and we always have you on the podcast is you're going to list Magnificent Ambersons, The Swimmer, and 13th Warrior, as all they are on equal footing, the three of those well, movies. I, what could be different? I'm not trying between, to say that. I mean, like, no, 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 I know. Gets me in trouble with the, the side by sides. No, Twitter, I'm the I'm like, same oh, way. These two things are. <laughs> I'm the same but... way. I'm the exact same way where there's not a need to be like, yeah, but just to be clear, 13th Warrior fucking sucks and Magnificent Amberson rule. Like, there's no need to re emphasize, like, that to like emphasize that order of it you know i'm the exact same way of these artworks are interesting and comparing them is interesting and it's no insult to a great artwork to say it has something in common or some relationship to a lesser artwork you know it just isn't it doesn't hurt it at all often like the artwork that's that's very flawed is is the stuff that you find like oh like that's really valuable in there you know if you go digging like that's the stuff that's interesting versus stuff that's often very polished and very well regarded and good and it's like i've I've got nothing to get out of this i've got nothing to say about it um you know i mean like even when i'm picking projects of, of things to write about for the pink smoke site i always try to look at like what other people have written about things and it's it's like i you know i don't want to i don't want to necessarily repeat the obvious and I, yeah. I try to like go looking for interesting subjects and try to say things about uh, films that haven't necessarily had a lot said about them and it's not like 
it's not like I think the more obscure something is, the more flawed something is, the more mangled something is, the, like the better it is necessarily. But I, I think like that's often where you find things that are unexplored and things that are unexplored, you often find a lot of value in. So, Yeah, absolutely. I agree. 100%. Um, thank you very much for doing this. We will talk more soon. I'm certain. I have no idea when this is going to post. Uh, uh, your total recall episode will be out someday soon. Oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to space it out from the Doom City, and now it's too spaced out from it. But we'll. Uh, I keep thinking, like, oh my God, I, I got to finish this thing I've been working on because, like, it's like, oh, I, like I'm writing a lot about uh, Last and First Men, the movie by Johan Johansson in yeah. it, and it's like. That would have been a good tie-in if I was finished <laughs> writing, but I'm, I'm too slow. I'm, uh, I gotta speed it up. So I know. Get your act together. Thanks again, Martin. This Thank was you. a huge amount of fun. 